Hey guys, thanks for joining. Ryan Cauley is a friend and a veteran of the Iraq War. Ryan is one of those guys that when I would see him, which isn't too often, we would naturally fall into that rhythm of conversation. People would come in and out of that conversation, but Ryan and I would be those guys that would still be talking 20 minutes later. Uh, I'm somebody that that likes to get deep. That's just what I do and, and who I am as a person. And Ryan is certainly an interesting guy. Today, Ryan and I talked about the brutality of war. We talked about PTSD and even what it means to be a man. Ryan comes from an impressive military pedigree. Not only is he a member of the 101st Airborne, which is Band of Brothers, there's a ton of history there, but his grandfather was also a survivor of the Battle of Iwo Jima. There was a book written about him. It's called The Last Lieutenant by John Shively. And for anybody that doesn't know much about the Battle of Iwo Jima, it was absolutely awful. And Ryan is alive today because of his grandfather. Ryan's a brave dude. Uh, he has a big heart to come on and have these conversations. I know it isn't easy. I appreciate his honesty and his no bullshit. Um, we did go a long time. We went over two hours, but I do guarantee you that by the end of it, you will certainly be impacted and you're going to you're gonna learn a hell of a lot. Um, put it on in the car, put it on while you're cleaning the house, and I guarantee you it'll go a lot faster than you think it will. Um, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And without further ado, here's Ryan. So when we get up onto this site, I mean, it's mayhem, chaos. We basically turn into an ambulance service. We start running people. Ryan. Ken. What's up, man? Not much, man. It's good to be here. Cheers. Cheers to you. Good to see you. So for the note, we have some delicious beer here. We went to Holmes Brewery in Ann Arbor. Mm. Uh, show is not brought to you by Holmes, but I figure I'd give them a shout out anyways. Um, I'm drinking this IPA. I don't know the name. Same, same? Same, same, different. Same, same, different. Mm. It's uh, it's really good. And I know you're a beer geek like I am. We, we share that. Yes, we do. I love the color. I got to tell you. There is a brewery out on the East Coast. I think it's called... Uh, what is it? Is it Treetops or something like there, that? Yeah, Treetop. Yep. So Treetop has like a really cool cloudy IPA like this. Mm. That's uh, I think they call it an Orange Julius. Yep. You're uh, absolutely right. I'm glad we're on the same page. Awesome. And they don't have distribution. You know, no, maybe, not maybe here. like a year ago, I called them and I was like, "Hey, man, where can I get some of that orange?" You just <laughs> called them. That's great. I, I just cold called them, right? Right. And they're like, "I'm sorry, we, you know, we're planning on bottling in the future, but you know, they have more of an online presence, than right? They do right. Distribution." But uh, do they have? Do list. they did, did? Did they get to the point where they distro in California? Or they do you have to do like like Holmes doesn't distro at all. You have to go to their. You right. have to go there to get it. You have to go to their brewery to get I it. I kind of like that though. No, I do too. It makes it very exclusive. But I, I didn't know if Treetop does that. Like, do they have like their own distro? I mean, I because Treetop I, does not. I mean, but then again, like I said, it was like a year or two ago that I called. Them. Oh right, right. You know, I was I was seeing their beers. And I was like, God, that looks amazing. I don't even know what an orange Julius is. I think it's an old drink. It's like orange it, soda and ice cream. Yeah, maybe. yeah. That's what. That's that's. Yeah, that is an orange Julius. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, so, which is good, especially on a nice summer day. Absolutely, right now. like today, it's yeah. gorgeous. Um, yeah, I would. I would love to get some some beer boys on this show. <laughs> beer boys meaning like guys that that run the show, the guys that are doing the brewing. Right. Like, I'm talking like yeah, big, some some brewer, head brewer, master brewers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Right. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But that'd be a good idea. You could have you know the guy from Holmes 
would be a good guy to have on. Yeah. yeah. So the other beer we got are in these fancy wine bottles, which are pretty sweet. We got a uh, Metaform Key Lime, and we got this Guava Sherbert, and uh, we're going to get into it a little bit. This Guava oh. Sherbert is fantastic, by the yeah. way. All right. Very good. All right. So um, changing gears here a little bit. Uh, again, I, I, I thank you for being on. Um, thank you for asking me. You were, uh, you were a guy I definitely wanted to get on. Um, so here's my preamble. I, I think that when you get together with a group of friends, and you and I have overlapping uh, social circles, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Sometimes I see you, sometimes I don't, right. but I've known you for a long time, right? It has been a long time now that you think about it, yeah. So when you get together with friends and you have conversations, oftentimes they're not really beyond surface level, right? You always have distractions, people coming up, you talk about, you know, sports or what's going on, you know, hey, what are you doing this summer? But what I think is cool about this podcast is it it I, I immediately recognize that it gives me the ability to sit down with people that I've always known and mm-hmm. get to know them more. Right. So I, you know, have a couple of friends that I talk to and you talk to them about their business and you talk to them about, you know, their dreams and their aspirations. And they tell you things that you didn't even realize before. Right. And it's very cool. So sitting down like this, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you, you know, a little bit more about some of the shit you've been through. Um, one thing that I've always noticed about you is uh, you're super easygoing. You're, you're very level. You're just you're an all around great dude. Uh, I appreciate that. I try, yeah. I try to yeah. be. I try to give off that comfortable vibe. I mean. I, I guess I don't try to, but I, that's just really what I'm. My whole life goal is to be, you know, just easygoing and right. Take things as and they at come. At the same time, on the opposite side of the coin, like knowing that you've been a veteran, mm-hmm. like you have had, or I've noticed you have like a, a a quiet intensity about you, and I can see in your eyes, you know, even though you don't say it, I'm like, okay, this guy's seen some shit. This guy's mm. been through some some challenging uh, experiences that I don't even want to ask him about. I don't even you know want to go there. Right. And not many people do. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you know they realize it, right? Right. Absolutely. And so uh, that's really what I'm hoping to get into you today. And mm. you know, you're doing some cool stuff right now um, out in the community, which we'll get to a little bit later. But I just kind of wanted to back up. I wanted to talk to. Uh, Ryan Cauley, the military version of, of Ryan Cauley. Okay. And I, I just wanted to start with, you know, when did you join the military? Uh, why did you decide to enlist, et cetera? Uh, so, yeah. So, again, thank you for mm-hmm. showing the interest in me. And I I think you're pretty much hit it right on. I do have, like, this quiet intensity. I have a very strong, strong, passionate for life for living, for the experience of life, for the different things that we come across. You know what I mean? So things, and I just uh, got chills thinking yeah, about stuff of that. But I like, actually see the goose flash on your arms. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, uh, I very much am seeking the experience in life. Like whatever, whatever it can be, you know, job, friendships, um, podcasts, things like that, like things like this. That's what it's all about for me. So um, to, to go to your question, like when I when I joined the military was um, a pretty uh, intense moment in our whole country's history and and our history as humans. 
um, in our lifetime. Um, 9-11 happened, and it wasn't till 2003, I think, is when we finally is when we finally got around to an invasion. And um, I was sitting at home Christmas of 2003, and I was just. I had gone to, I was in like, I was 22, 21, 22, and I had been in college. I had done, you know, I went to college to, um, I, as a youth, as a youngster, I was very, um, I just kind of making decisions by the seat of my pants. I did, I went to college to play football and I didn't even go to a very big college. I went to a small college, didn't have any, like education was I, I didn't care about a book. Like I just want to play football. Like that was it for me. Um, totally not the greatest way to plan your future, but that's just how it was. And that's what, what, you know, so after about two years I had stopped and I was kind of like in this little lull period of, you know, really trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I was taking a break from college and, um, you know, like I said, on Christmas, I had seen, you know, all these guys or the story was, you know, all these troops are going to be, they're deployed that are going to miss their Christmas with their families, you know, and I'm, like I said, I was 21, 22 and just kind of not knowing exactly what, the, what I was going to do with my life and, and really the direction at all. I had none really. And, you know, I was kind of, uh, just crashing in my parents' house. I mean, it's just like a normal twenty, twenty-one year old would do tw- whatever. Just crash your parents' house when you, you know, when you, when you can, yeah. in between places or whatever. And that's what it was. And and um, so it was a Monday. I'm not exactly sure. This is 2003. I'm not exactly sure of the date, but I know that Friday, that falling Friday, was New Year's Eve. And. Um, so that Monday, I called the recruiter, and I was like, hey, I'm joining the military this week. I just want you to know that, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I'm all in, this bro. is happening. <laughs> so, like, I was basically the best, uh, like, the easiest get for a recruiter. Yeah, right. You know what it, I mean? Like, it, it, it wasn't hard. So. No, like, he's right. thinking, okay, so all these things that I need, I normally need to do to sell a person, I can save <laughs> for the next person. Like, like an extra twenty thousand dollars signing bonus, I'll save that for the guy who I need to really. Right, do. right. Yeah, I signed it's like up. The guy that goes that. into the car dealership and he's like, "Hey, I want a car. This yeah. is what I want." Yeah, the guy. And he's like, oh well, it. here's a fifty thousand dollar car to start with. You know, <laughs> enjoy like, your commission. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And all those recruiter dudes, they do have quotas, right? I don't know. I'm sure they do have a quota. I'm sure there's some sort of number that they would prefer to hit. Like I'm sure there is. Like I, I don't know that for certain but i can't imagine there not being something that they have like incentivizing them to do their job you know what i mean i'm sure that that exists but um like i said i was just an easy gift for this guy there was no doubt this guy if he wasn't gonna let me in the army i was gonna join the marines it was one of the two so i mean my grandfather was a marine i had a bunch of family members that have served so uh, my grand, one of my grandfathers was a Marine. One of my grandfathers was a, uh, an army, uh, medic. And so like I had, you know, kind of had heard experiences from both. And, um, <laughs> I was, 
I was a little intimidated about being a Marine. I did, I was like, you know, I'm I'm in this, but I'm not all in on this, which is at the time you think a Marine is just like, you know. I've decided. Yeah, yeah, This yeah. is the life. Yeah, and, and granted, I had decided, but I wasn't like. So like, you had doubts. Yeah, I, yeah, I was a little, well, I was intimidated. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I was intimidated about the thought of being in the military because, you know, it was just an uncharted water that I hadn't. been in or or experienced and you and and being a marine seems pretty intense right i mean it's just own you yeah yeah like you know so i mean that so monday you know like i said i called i'd gone through the the tests the recruiter had come to my house i'd taken the asvab like i did all the steps my mom is like asking more questions than I am because I could care less. I'm like, I'm in, you know, like it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to see the world. Right. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that's, that's really what was behind it was just being able just that I was in a, a lull period of my life and, and, um, nine 11 happened. And I just feel like, I felt like that was, that was really what was, that was meant to do. Yeah. And that was in 2001, and so two years later, later, you're still feeling those reverberations in yourself. You're just, you feel that disgust. You feel like, I want to do more. Yeah, yeah. And, like In the combination of that with you trying to figure out what you're doing with your life, you're, you're just like, fuck it, I'm all in. Yeah, I mean, there were the images. There was all the video. There was the, sh- and, and, and that seemed to me like that was the answer that I, to the questions that I had for myself was, I lack discipline. I lack drive and direction. And these are the things that maybe are going to set me on that path. You know, where were you when nine 11 happened? I was in uh, where I'm, where I was raised, which is Pendleton, Indiana. Mm. Where's Pendleton? Um, it's about 40 minutes North East of Indianapolis. Um, just off I 69. Right on. Yeah. So small little town, you go through this processing and I would make the comment that, even though I haven't gone through the process of going through the military, I would imagine that everybody's nervous. Everybody has their doubts and anybody that would say otherwise is a liar. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's pretty intense. You, it's a lot of unknown. There's a lot of, you have no control of your own life anymore. You, you're basically at the will of the United States government, but you know what I mean? Like, but like, you know that you get that. That's the reason why he signed up. Like you're, you're doing you're doing these things um because that's what you wanted to do that's what i wanted you know like um i remember the day that when i left for for basic training was pretty uh you know my you have one so i'll start from from my recruiter drove me to meps and he picks me up and this is like the last like you have another urine test that you have to take and everything and and i had been kind of indulging in the can the <laughs> cannabis at the time. So, um, and I knew this was like kind of what I'm going to be probably my last hurrah for, for, for some years at least to, to, sure. to partake. So, um, I think I, I think I had like four days prior to, to him picking me up and was like, okay, well, okay. So let me start when I had signed up in January, like I said, I, New Year's Eve Friday was a New Year's Eve. So when I signed up, my dad, my I came home and my dad and we we partied like I'd never partied <laughs> with my dad before. So he was supportive, very he was, supportive. He was, 
excited cool. to send you off. Yeah, yeah. Like when I, um, I I signed up, and then when I left for basic training, it wasn't for another three months. So like I, it was January, and then it was like March before I actually left for basic. But January or that New Year's Eve, you know, December thirty first, when I had actually signed the paperwork. You know, that was the first time I had shared a drink with my dad, and it was New Year's Eve. It was oh, pretty shit. intense. Yeah, it was like we – that nobody out part – like, it was with well, my – Well, you were 22 at the time. Yeah, so I was I of age. Understand and that. it was like, yeah, very new. Like, I, you know, I maybe had sipped a beer that I had cracked and taken to my dad <laughs> past – you know, like – but my dad wasn't a huge beer drinker. He's not a big – Me neither. No, nah, so he was just um, – excuse me. He was very um, – my dad's very disciplined, very, you know, honest, honest stuff. And, um, you know, huge military guy didn't join or didn't, um, serve himself, but his, his, my grandfather, his dad served. And, um, my dad has a very huge respect for the military and which is the reason why I felt like I was going to be, another thing was that I felt like I was going to be doing right in his eyes was because of the respect that I knew that he had. And, um, we had watched, we watched military movies together all the time leading up until then. And, and like band of brothers was hot at this time. Yeah. And, you know, like that yeah. had like single handedly almost put me, you know, like really give me that push. I mean, I don't know if you watched Donnie Wahlberg, but he is so good in that movie. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, so I left on, or I joined on December 31st on my paperwork and then, you know, by March I'm leaving and that day of leaving now to finally get around to the, to, to calling back here, the, um, it was two or three o'clock in the morning. They move you at night. Everything's in the dark. Um, you know, you're on a, so I get to the Indianapolis airport. It's like one o'clock in the morning. I get on my flight. It's I'm going to Louisville. So Why it's like that? a 30 minute Why flight. Why did they move you in the dark though? Is, is it to just kind of rattle you? Not rattle you, but kind of acclimate you from the beginning? I think it's just to, I think that as the military, I think we like to do things out of the public eye as much as possible. Now, granted, I'm in civilians. I'm not sticking out. I don't stick out. Like there's not like you have a uniform at this point. But there, the movement of it all, you know, is just they like to keep a low profile as much as possible. That's just the way I took it, and it and it also was very jarring. So that could be it as well. Was that you know, this is the start to a time where you have never will have a set schedule. You'll never be able to you know be comfortable. You know, you're always going to be, you know, go, go, go. So that's just, I just figured that was the start of go, 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 you know. So when I got to, so they, the flight was through Louisville. I did my, my basic at Fort Knox. We drove from Louisville to Fort Knox, which was a half hour to 45 minute drive, maybe. Um, and as soon as you get off that bus, it's just drill sergeants ready for you. <laughs> Fresh <laughs> fish. Just ready. Fresh yeah. fish. Yeah. So that basic training, is it really as intense as you see in the movies? More so? Maybe misconstrued? Um, it can be, yeah. I mean, you know, first, you're, you're, you're an athlete. I'm an athlete. We've, we've both played on team sports. So, you know, there's, there's a level of, of that, that 
you know, like um, I played football. I played – so when you – that summer workout, right, those summer workouts. Oh, the two-a-days. Tra- yeah, the oh, two-a-days yeah. are oh, yeah. pretty intense. 80 like, degrees in August. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. it's just that for four months straight, basically. Just nonstop, push you, push you, push you, mental, you know, uh, breakdowns, build-ups. You know, a lot of – that's what a lot of people don't talk about is there's there is some reinforcement there. Um, like for instance, my drill sergeant, my drill sergeant was a guy who grew up from, was from eight mile black guy from eight mile, probably one of the most incredible people to actually, you know, like the, my first real, um, military experience was by this guy and he was, his name was Dante Reese and he was an absolute badass, just absolute badass. Like this guy could run for days, um, athlete through and through, but soldier through and through. And so you kind of, he kind of instilled that in you and kind of just like, these guys are your mentors. Yeah. They don't, they don't just break you down. No, they very they much, inspire you yeah, they inspire you at the same time because yeah, they're, they're hard on you and they, they make your life a living hell on a daily basis, but they also are teaching you things. And if you're smart enough, you know, you, you'll learn, you, you, you can see that you pick up those pearls. Yeah. And you can, and you, and you see the lesson that's being taught to you, right? That, yeah, it sucks. And you can say, Oh, what was me and poor me? And, and this is the worst experience of my life, but you can also take it and look at it as, okay, this is only a short period of my life until I get to the real thing that I was actually my real goal, which is, you know, being a part of a unit, and you know the my real journey that's about to start at least that's what you you haven't realized that your journey has already started because you're just so you're like yeah, i want to get out of this basic training part and i want to get to the real thing right but your journey has started and your learning has started and your experience has started and you feel like you know now looking back now i feel like you know that was when i really learned how to be a soldier and it really is that's when you learn how to be a soldier in other podcasts i've heard that the 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 basic is is what people focus on, right? And, and other, like SEALs, for example. Mm-hmm. Oh, how was Bud's week? You know what I mean? Whatever. And, and they kind of shrug it off and say, you know, this is part of it. But the harder part is deploying, is 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 being in that, that military situation. I don't know if it, it, it translated the same for you. And maybe you can confirm, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely makes it more real, um, you know, because up until then you kind of go through emotion and I, and I did say that there was no schedule, but you do have a little bit of a schedule while you're in the garrison life. Now garrison in quotes is like the, when you're stateside and you're going through your nine to five and you you have your uniform pressed and you're, you know, you're granted you don't have to do that anymore, but back in the day you had to have your boots shine, your uniform press and this, this was my life for the first year and then we got a different set of uniforms and different boots and that that no longer became a part of your daily process of living in a garrison you know stateside being in the military which is what it's like when there's no you know threat or or combat going on which sure there hasn't been there hasn't not been for a while you know but but um it definitely when you're at home and I say home like you're, you know, in the States and you're and you're just doing your, your training and you're going, you know, all right, we're going to go do a week out 
in the woods and we're going to, you know, practice on these, these certain skills and training and we're going to do all this stuff in preparation for, you know, the deployment or, or just, you know, staying ready as any, as you would expect sure. the military does. So those famous bonds that we all hear about in the military, do those start in basic or is it when you really get assigned to a unit? And I, I don't really know how the process works. Right. So maybe you can clarify for me. And yes and yes and no. Um, a lot of times when you graduate basic training, you may go with a few of your buddies to, to, the, to one spot um, or you may not at all. I don't, you know, in the past, I don't know exactly how it works for others, but I imagine that it was, you know, there's a hundred, hundred guys. You're not all going to go to the same place. Um, they may split you up and send you to, to different places where they need people. But in my experience, my personal experience it was a totally different situation. Fort Campbell, which is where I was the 101st Airborne, was going through a transition. That's Kentucky, right? Yeah. So we were going through a... Ch- wait, 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 wait. Pump the brakes. So 101st is Band of Brothers, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Yeah. So that was, so like I said... Scre- you were Screaming Eagle. Yeah, yeah. So like Hell I said, yeah. like a Band of Brothers was really what was kind of like pushed me into the military. And then there I was getting orders at the end of basic to go to the 101st. And it was... Like that I'm patch? sitting here right now again, chills. Like it. it was, it was very intense. It was very that incredible. patch is awesome too with the bald eagle against the, the black backdrop. It's the best patch it, you can get. And the only reason I know what that patch was, so I grew up with with six brothers, right? A lot of testosterone in my yeah. family, <laughs> and from an, a very early age. Uh, we would go to Harry's Army Surplus, okay. which I don't even know if it exists anymore. Yeah. But we would buy like kids' fatigues, and we would buy fake guns. And this is when like <laughs> fake guns look like real Uzis and right, shit like that. Right. Like, like yeah, who's yeah. gonna go through the woods with an Uzi, right? Yeah. But it was fun, right? But you and, wanted uh, the real thing. You the wanted real... the real thing, and this was at a time where, uh, you know, before. You know, sad to say, like uh, young kids were being shot by police because they had toy guns that looked ultra realistic. Right. So they started putting that orange tip on them. Right. But my my brothers would also buy the patches, you know, and one of those patches was the Screaming Eagles. It's it's literally one of the best unit patches in the military. I mean, it's got the airborne arc. Yeah, it's the airborne arc on it. I mean, it's it's there's so much history in the 101st i mean it's every battle you know world war 1 and 2 every battle every major battle in world war 2 the 101st was involved in d day bastogne uh, i mean uh, the history is it's incredible, incredible. yeah right yeah. so uh i mean correct me if i'm wrong i think they're a big part of d day which we are were... recording on right now by the way Say that today again. is the day d day today yeah. I, I didn't even plan that. Yeah, I know. It, and to have you on, that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. That's right. great. And so I think they were actually the the first boots on the ground in occupied France as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I read, uh, I did read Dick Winters' book, Band of Brothers, and mm-hmm. that's some powerful shit. And I didn't realize that the 101st was part of the Battle of the Bulge, which was a, yeah. a greater operation, but they were the spear tip. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Dick Winters is... One of the the most uh, legendary military strategists in the history of military, like the history of yeah. the United States government. I mean, he just gets it. I mean, he's a natural he, leader. Well, he he was um, in the movie and well, in the uh, in the series. They talk about the L shape ambush, right? Which is the very like, and I think it's like the 
second or third episode. I think it's Caratan or Carantan or I forget how you pronounce the, I think you're right. the town. That's where they're they're running into some some German M or in the M sixties. They, they were a big US guns, gun, and, but and like, like yeah, they were entrenched, right? And so they took. They took these guns from his his strategy, which was this L shape ambush, where they could get. Anyways, it's it had not existed. It is now taught L shape ambush is now wow, taught. I didn't know that. Like yeah, it's like in your field manuals. Like anytime you any any you, you every truck every person carries a manual on different. Is know, that just to get that crossfire? Yep, that's exactly what it was. It was to conf- and to also confuse confuse the enemy on where where who was firing on who. Whoa, yeah. And like, you know what's wild about that is that was just on the fly. It was very much on the fly because of this because of how they had themselves set up. The Germans had set themselves up. He was able to design that off of that. Yeah. You know what I think is pretty cool about Dick Winters, and I didn't I didn't realize this until I read the book, is that he was incredibly humble he didn't even want to talk about his military experience he lived in pennsylvania he on a farm he died in pennsylvania and they wanted to do a memorial for him i think they wanted to erect a statue or something like that Mm. and his family after he died was like this is not who our grandfather was and we don't want any attention right and and i think he just passed in the past was it a year or two three years maybe or four i don't know it's very recent but he was uh, pretty much a huge inspiration a lot of people and like I, I towards the end of my basic training and anybody's basic training you do have a little bit more of a leniency on you the drill sergeants you know you, you get it by f- four months into it and you can kind of like you have a little bit more of a personal relationship at least some people I definitely did because I don't know I have a little bit about me like you said there's an easy goingness to me that I can kind of joke but also be serious at the same time and know my bounds. So it's, a, I think it's a maturity. I think the drill sergeants could see in me and I would, and I would joke with them and be like, Hey, can we get Dick winners to be our, to, to give our, like our graduation speech? Like I'm, I'm like pushing for this. I'm like, laughing while taking a sip of my beer. Yeah. Like I, I would, <laughs> I'm thinking like, this is actually going to happen. Like he's going to come and like speak to like some random yeah. graduation. Some pe- old guy. Yeah. Out like there, right? we're, completely we're unreasonable, completely unreasonable. <laughs> but you know, like I'm, you know, so the, you're a Dick Winters fan. I was a huge Dick Winters <laughs> fan. Like the guy was, I mean, it, especially the way, you know, I'm, mean, I'm sure that's, because I know that the the actor, and I'm sh- I'm shorting on his name right now, but I'm sure the actor did plenty of research the on him. Yeah, yeah, he's I a phenomenal actor. But like, he had that stoicness, that you know, that calmness. He carried like he very much portrayed that that Dick Winters gives off that that leadership um, calmness that kind of sets you. It gives it gives you a confidence as a unit that kind of. That just that true leadership vibe that can just say, "All right, this is what we're doing," and be so confident in his own plan that it makes you, as his follower, just as confident. He's a guy you want to go into war with, no doubt, no doubt. And obviously, you know, the history books will obviously show that. You know, man, just going off on a tangent here. Uh, I had a grandfather who, you know, he was he was in the navy, but. Um, you know, through his experiences, through his stories, you, you kind of get a feel for who the people are that are over there. And I honestly do believe that the men of that World War II generation are better men than us today. 
And I think um, you just see it in the sense that they weren't looking for celebrity. They were men that were called, you know, to duty. You mm-hmm. know, they felt like it was their duty to to join the military. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you mentioned 9-11, but after Pearl Harbor, there was also a ton of, of young men that also signed up for the military. Um, I just think that there was there was something about them that was humble, hardworking. These, these guys weren't superstar athletes or, or great physical specimens, but they were regular dudes that... that with a drive and with an intensity. With a drive, exactly. A, That's yeah, exactly yeah. what I was going to say. They had a drive oh, and a purpose. A, a, and a dedication to, you know, or just an absolute love of their country and right. the and the freedom that they had. I mean... And you don't really see that. Well, no. I mean, and I think that it, obviously the times are different and, the, and different and the things that we do are different. And I know that, um, you know, that type of warfare takes a different type of mentality the warfare that we have that we fight now and you know with the different types of drones and air air um it's completely different it's completely different um obviously we still have boots on the ground we still have you know lives being lost but the difference in warfare and style is night and day night and day and the respect that I know that my era and the guys that I served with had for those guys, our grandfathers basically, right? Our grandfathers that, that fought in that war. Um, I mean, we saw what we had to deal with, which was in its own right, it, it's diffi- had its difficulties. But um, you talk about the guys going over to, you know, to France and running onto a beach that they'd never been to, um, fighting in, in Japan. And you know, like my grandfather fought. I love the Pacific, fought, by the fought way. in Iwo Jima. That's a great. Series Your grandfather as well. fought in Iwo Jima. He fought in Iwo Jima. He was a he's marine. Alive. Li- marine You're lieutenant. alive because he's alive today. Yeah, I mean he um, he was he he had he had a book written written about him called The Last Lieutenant because he had lost his entire platoon in at in Iwo Jima and and yeah you have looked that book up he's it's completely all about him and it's. Um, Pretty, What's it called again? The last lieutenant. The last lieutenant. Yeah, and so he lost his his entire platoon out there on Iwo Jima, um, and it's you know those that that style of warfare and that landscape and the terrain and those those things that those those guys had to go through and fight through. It's not anything like we had to it fight through. Exist it doesn't exist. We, I we, mean, it's there, but you're talking. It's, talk- it's outdated it it happens in moments it happens in times like in afghanistan you can't obviously have vehicles everywhere because the terrain just doesn't permit it's mountainous right so you have to have you know squads and and platoons of guys on girls and even now on on foot you know so you you, that's the only way you can take it that's the only way you can deal with it now in iraq which is where i was i didn't leave a v i can't tell you how many times i left a vehicle most of most of the time i spent in Iraq was in a vehicle, you know, doing route clearances, doing, doing patrols and presence patrols where we just remind people that we were around and, you know, um, so you know, ready. You deploy in 2003, you're going to Iraq. I didn't actually, I didn't deploy until 2005, but I deployed, I went to basic in 2000. Where'd you deploy from? From Fort Campbell. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. we let we had, the Fort Campbell has its own little airport. So what are some of those other there? like giant bases around the around the country? I think there's Fort Bragg. Bragg. I think that's the biggest. Benning. Probably. That's that's North Carolina. Yeah. Benning's Georgia, right? For, uh, Benning's in Georgia. Bragg is in North Carolina. Um, then you have um, like some of the Marine bases, like Camp, like Pendleton, Lejeune. Got it. And then you have so, uh, other Army bases, um, Fort Worth, Fort. Drum Collins, like some those are the ones that house like Fort some Hood's of those, Texas, right? Yeah, Fort Hood is in Texas, so that's a, that's a big one that has a first cav, first cav division in there. So, wow. yeah, that's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. So, segueing into being deployed, going into battle, um, you know who Jocko is, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So Jocko Willing, for those that don't know, is I would say now famous. Um, SEAL commander, mm-hmm. right? It's Navy SEAL at the time. And he talks about when you go into war, when you go into battle, you have to grapple in your own mind with the fact that you have to be prepared to kill your enemy or be killed. Mm-hmm. And I was curious to know how did that unfold in your mind and how did you come to terms with that? Was it was it easy? Was, was there a conflict? Was it like, uh, hey, I, I got a job to do? Yeah. Um, now, now I would definitely say it would be harder for me now than had I than when I was younger. You know, I have a different outlook on life now than I did when I was younger. But when I, let's you know to your question, when I was younger, you know, and it, this is something that everybody says, and it's a, kind of a cliche, um, but it's I'd rather be judged by twelve than carried by six. So what that means is basically I'd rather kill than be killed. Right. And that doesn't matter if it's a, you know. 12 being the people in the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 12, yeah. 12 being, yeah, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six rather than, you know, your six pallbearers carrying your coffin. Right. So basically it's like, you know, we, you, 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 you see movies, right? Like say Black Hawk Down. You got kids carrying AK-47s in Mogadishu, right? Where, you know, it's crazy. That's crazy for you as a human, a male, an adult. And, and the lives that we've led and the, the the things that we've, you know, like when we were 12 years old, what were we doing? Playing t-ball, playing Little League Baseball? We weren't wielding AK-47s in the street, right? That's not what we were doing. I wasn't. So when I'm seeing, you know, when you see that on TV, you see a movie – you know, you kind of think that's what it's going to be like, and not and necessarily wasn't like that. It, what that was not my norm, my experience in Iraq. But you never know, and you you you, you got to be prepared for anything. If a kid's going to carry a twelve, like in our eyes, if you're if the, if that twelve year old was mature enough to carry that gun, then he was mature enough to die. You know, and I'm not going to die. I'm not going. And this sound like even saying this right now. Talking about a twelve killing a twelve year old kid, it sounds like the most ridiculous thing that I've ever said. But I was very much prepared to to do that, and every single person around me was also prepared to do that. And it's it's um, you don't know it and think about how intense that is until until I'm just now probably saying it into this microphone. But it feels like you know, like you. Th- thinking about taking another person's life or even a person that hasn't even, that's only lived for 12 years and has however many years left to live. It seems, uh, it's a lot, that's a heavy weight 
like to think about and to even carry like I but at the time when I was 22 23 years old like I don't even think that would even have bothered me like I was just a different person at that time like it was just something I was just thought was I honestly thought that that was going to be something that I was going to come across was kids carrying guns and you know luckily that wasn't the case luckily there was kids rushing out of you know grade schools at the end of their day and I could you know one of my friends sent me like a box of sweet tarts because he knew my my favorite candy was sweet tarts so he sent me a huge box like you would buy it like it's an odd candy Costco is very odd candy (laughs) to have is your favorite candy it is but I used to love them dude I used to eat those rolls by all the time it's crazy to think about now because I don't do it but I did at the time but he sent me a huge box that had, you know, like 30 rolls of sweet tarts in it. You know, like the ones, you know, big box that sits out at the grocery store and you take one roll. That's the box he sent me. And so I took that. I took, you know, when we go on patrols, I take like, you know, a couple handfuls of them with me just to hand. If, you know, by circumstance, I give them to the kids. You know, it was I, you had I had I had the I wanted to let the kids know that we were there not as somebody to scare them, but somebody that was going to be, um, like a friend, you know, somebody like, cause, and they come up to you like goldfish. This was like two, this was 2004. So what are we, 2020? This is 16 years ago. So if we're talking about kids that were 10, those kids are 26 years old now. Right. Wow. So those kids, you know, they have, they're adults, they have their own families possibly. Right. So and they have memories of you yeah, being there, the troops being there. Giving them candy, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make my imprint as as a as a you know, a welcoming, hey, the these US Americans we can trust. Like didn't they you ever were worry but didn't you ever worry about like kids coming up to you with like an IED vest? You know, enemy using that that vulnerability, that that kindness against you. Yeah. Um It did, and I didn't. I probably should have been more on guard than I was, um, but I, you know, it's tough because you have, like, when you're driving through a town, it's hard to just like disperse. You can't, you can't get everybody out of your way. Excuse me, but like you got, <laughs> like when I'm, you know, when you're going through a city. Just like say today, like say, you know, there's a lot of people out today. There's a lot of people outside. And let's say that we're occupied by another military force, right? And that military force starts to pull through town out of nowhere, right? They've got to do some sort of maneuvering around what's going on in these people's everyday lives. Because that's what they're doing. They're living their everyday lives. And if it's music on the park and Friday, right? Yeah, no, no, you know, there's, there's always music playing and there was always that there's always music playing. Like, just like you're saying, like, it's, it's like a regular city. These people are going about their day, you know, they got to go to the market. They got, what was that like then? What? I mean, so like sweltering hot. Yeah. It's heat. It's, um, constantly people up against your vehicles, like very close to you. You can't, it's hard to, it's hard to keep them away. So at any moment's notice, you could be, you know, you, anything like that can happen um, where, you know, you like you said, uh, what happens if an enemy decides to strap a vest to a kid and send them out there to, you know, you don't know. You just never know. And 
that's part of it was that we, you know, a lot of times we would just feel like we were bullet magnets just driving, waiting to get blown up or waiting to get shot so we could actually do something. Because it wasn't like you're fighting a military force. It wasn't like, you know, like in World War II where you have, you know, the Americans versus the Germans. Wearing know? a uniform. Yeah, it has, it has an identifying uniform. These people don't have... These terrorists don't have identifying uniforms. They're wearing civilian clothes just like you and me right now. So you have to wait to basically get that um, that contact, that bullet fire or an explosion before you can react. It's not like you, Those are the rules of engagement. Yeah, that's the rules of engagement. That's the SOP. And then if you have... What's SOP? Uh, standard, standard operating, operating procedure. Yeah, procedure. So if you have... Now, granted, there were days that we had missions where we were going to go do a raid on a house. Like we had gotten intel from somebody that, that had been, you know, s- supplying weapons or money or cash or to to a cell of group of terrorists or something like that, right? Like we would go do a raid on that house or something like that. But for the most part, you know, that's not happening because you're not going to have a lot of people that are going to be ratting people out. There's a lot of you know, just like the mafia, you, you think you have, you know, this is a very, these, these towns are like 50, 60 people, like these villages, and especially the ones that we're patrolling, like out in. That's tiny. Yeah. Very small. So you think about, think about who you went to high school with, your group of friends. Well, at least for me, I know you, I know you went to probably a bigger high school than me. I grew up, I graduated with 270 people. The teachers that I had, knew my dad so like you know what i mean like so like and my my point is like if you do anything in this town these people are going to know about it you know they're going to know about you they're going to know about you know so-and-so being a rat or being a tipping off the the americans or something like that so i would imagine that they wouldn't detonate an ied if it was near a a city center right or or no that was that would be ideal for them Really? An IED, maybe not, but uh, you know, if they were gonna, if they really wanted to do some serious damage to, to, you know, like the people, that would be ideal for them. But like, if they just wanted to affect us, they would dig a hole along a route, like a road, and put a put a you know a bomb inside that. And when, when you know, it's a pretty vague term IED. What an IED is is basically. Uh, it's any type of explosive that they can come up with. Now that could be a pipe bomb, but a lot of times here in in, in Iraq at the time, you know, Saddam had these caches, these weapon, these ammo dumps, literally placed randomly throughout the desert, and you and they could know they could go to there and get these caches. That's that's one of the things that we did. We called it Easter egg hunting. We would go out oh. and somebody would find these little caches of like whole, you know, and we go out and dig them up. Like one time we found 150, 150, you know, millimeter rounds, which is artillery rounds that are like this big. So what they would do is that's what they would use for their IEDs. They would take those big rounds, set like two or three of them together, put them next to the road, wait for us to drive down the road. And they'd use a cell phone. Sometimes they'd use a garage door opener. Just like just a little clicker, you know, and just to to detonate. Now, what when you're driving a, a, in the open desert, you know, it's just completely open. There's not, you know, they sometimes there would be telephone poles, 
and that's how they would gauge. So they would uh, run a line. They'd like 100 run a yards hundred, or a yeah, really long line off that road, way out into the desert, lie down. And as you're driving down, they count. They see the telephone poles, and they see how fast you're going off of the telephone poles. There'd be you know one pole. They've been, they're hitting. You know they hit this many poles, and then they try to time it and hit the button so it would go. You know as you're passing through, that it would hit you then. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times they were, you know, they were successful and unsuccessful because they. A lot of times they don't know the rounds that they're they're gathering, so they don't know what they're seeing. They're very untrained. So, yeah, that's insane. So yeah, I mean, but so to answer your question, yes, there were. Um, uh, I will say, so there was one story, one thing that happened in my deployment that was easily, without doubt, the most traumatic thing that I experienced. I mean, we had IEDs go off. I my I had a day where I had two IEDs go off on my truck alone. So the first one on a tr- on a route was we were doing route clearance for this. I'm, I'm now starting on two different stories and I know this is going to be hard to follow, but like, so one story that I had, it was, and I'll just start with this one was that, um, we were doing a route clearance. We were going to take, we were going to be convoy escorting a major and a group of mid team people that mid teams basically go and they work with the local sheiks and they just real quick if i can cut you off mm -hmm. i've never understood the hierarchy of of military and and without getting into the weeds here where does a major fall between i mean is he is he like like between a below a general no he's like four steps below a general so he'd be like in between a captain and a colonel okay so you go uh lieutenant first lieutenant second lieutenant captain then major major uh lieutenant colonel colonel and then um general so there's there's and there's like nice you're really popping it yeah that was the (laughs) that was the key line just for anybody that heard it please continue i'll pour you first but um yeah you have they um they're important they're not not important they they have a lot of duties they have a lot of you know, things that they do. Um, but they, but, but for this specific entrance, the in, you know, inference, they were, um, they were going to meet some other, you know, sheiks to do, um, just community type stuff. That's a lot. What we did was, was, a, you know, my job, my specific job was to make sure that we were safe and we were, you know, doing soldiery duties, but you know, for the higher ups, the officers, they're trying to make, they're trying to do community stuff, trying to help, you know, help build a community, help these sheiks figure out how to get, you know, take care of their, the hospitals and the, but the, that's also uh, winning the hearts and minds, right? Yeah. There's a, it's a lot of that stuff. Yeah. They do, they do work in a, a lot of that stuff. So, um, so we're escorting them. We're, we're, we're heading down to this meeting and we get hit by this IED. It hits the back right of my truck and it's only a, a it's called a, an illumination round, which it, back in the day, you know, if you, it's like people, they'd shoot off these illumination rounds to go up in the air and light up an area. So like in Vietnam, if right. they were trying to find the Viet Cong. Didn't they have those, those mini uh, parachutes where it would like float Yeah, that's down exactly what it is. Like this is a flare. It becomes like a kind of like, that's, that's a flare, but what these illumination rounds are just like big bursts of, of light that will, you know, that will basically light up an area and um 
that's what they had actually used for the first explosion. And so that was harm harmless. Like there was, it, it all just made a big bang. That was it. Um, so we get to the meeting We you know, we do our thing is that, you know, we're, we're not like me and the, you know, the guys at my level, we're not involved in the meeting. So we just do our stuff. We like, you know, shoot the shit by the trucks, wait for a few hours. They come back. We head back home. It's nighttime at this time. We soon as 15, maybe 10 minutes outside the, we get outside the gate headed home. Boom. Front left of my truck, big explosion. This one's a real deal. They, I get, I get a lot of rock and shrapnels coming my way. You can tell the second it goes off. Oh yeah, yeah, it's jarring, very jarring. And then the fur, and then my the driver's side windshield of my truck, spider webs, and which was you know thick thick glass on these up armor Humvees. So it didn't take the glass out, which is good because my driver would have taken all that to his to his face um you know i took a lot of rocks and stuff for coming on that on top of me is it deafening it was yeah it was loud very loud um we you know we did our reaction to the blast you know drive through the blast split up come back that was our that's our sop for reacting to an ied blast was to continue continue on through the blast split up come back down and clear on your way back to you know people that were could possibly be involved in the detonation of it so but my main the biggest traumatic experience i had was a bombing of a mosque and this was november of 05 and so me and a buddy had been selected by my platoon sergeant to because we had we had a group of sf special forces that were um they would do these like outreach recruitings while they were in theater which is kind of crazy to think about so they asked for two people and we had we were only 60 of americans there were only 60 americans on this place so me getting chose for this was like i was you know like i was my platoon sergeant's favorite like i was on his truck i was his gunner like he picked me for stuff all the time so he picked me for this and um, we spent two weeks with the special forces group helping reinforce this Iraqi army compound. So first thing we do when we get invited to this, we, they take us over to the special forces compound and they tell us to strip everything that we had that make us look like regular army. Cause we were supposed to look like them. Wow. So we had to do, so I had to, you what know, you make, wear then civilian clothes. Yeah, I mean, well, no, I'm wearing, you know, everything. My uniform is the same, so I have to take off my name tag. I have to take off my rank. I have to take off, you know, like I had this neck protector. I had a a nut protector. This what thing that goes down. Tanks? It goes down my my nuts and stuff. So I had to I had to strip all. We had wings that I would attach to my body armor. They come down over my arms. I had to take all that off to what basically. What about dog tags? No, that was I kept those on. But like anything on the outside, got I had it, to look like it. them on the outside. Got it. So, um, the backs, we, you know, we do all that. And when finally we start the actual mission, so we get to the act, the Iraqi compound and, um, we, the, you know, our basic duties were to reinforce this. So the whole backside of this building was gone. There was no wall. There was no back wall to the building. So the rooms, the front, you had the front of the building. So imagine there was a front of this building, right? And there's nothing here. There's just an open area, and we could jump off that anytime we wanted to. That's what this building was like. So it was very 
decrepit, like just not ideal for a military force to be in because you're you're just basically open to the world. So we're helping them reinforce this, and you know we're also doing you know little presence things here. We 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 actually help them build a, a checkpoint outside in front of their their uh, compound so they could they could you know check traffic and they could you know do um, vehicle checks on people that were trying to come in or that you know people that were trying to pass by because that was a that was a big problem for you know they get a lot of activity out of the front of their compound so we're in the middle of this and we hear this huge huge like we're probably three or four days into this at this point and we hear this huge explosion so um we grab like you know the guys these these special forces guys click in right away they're like grab your shit grab your gear we're going so we get we load up we get there to this explosion and um it was a friday a friday in the muslim religion is um kind of like a community day where they you know they go to the mosque and they that's their day of religion their day of um celibacy kind of you know so they um they it was a father son day at the mosque some guy had driven a van up outside the the mosque and blew the van up and killed 80 people that day so when we get up onto this site i mean it's mayhem chaos we basically turn into an ambulance service where we start running people back and forth we start taking i mean you know, it's just, there's a lot of stuff that I don't remember. There's a lot of stuff that my mind has blacked out, like the actual sites of the build, Like the buildings, I can remember seeing the building gone, completely decimated. And then I just remember seeing, like, just people, just people everywhere, just chaos. And we just start loading bot People put people into the back and taking them to the hospital, which was... I want to say it was like a half a mile because I just remember us making, just going back and forth, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for hours. For it, it seemed for, seemed like hours. I have no, I have no concept of time for this day at all. It was just absolute chaos. And I remember being at the hospital. I do remember one moment being there, and then just there was like a moment where you see the workers and nurses of this hospital coming out and you meeting them. And it was just like this, you know, these were the, these were the townspeople of the hospital. You know, these, this was their place. This is their house, their home, their job, their, their, this is where they live their lives. And it's like, you know, I'm an American, not anybody, anybody that they've ever seen or any of us, any, any of the guys. And, you know, they just like take, you know, they just, they just responded to us as being the ambulance service, you know, like, like it was understood, you know, not like, it was just like a friendly face bringing these people, you know, what did you it, see we in just come, we just connected. What it, did you see in that? Like in their eyes, they're coming out of it. Yeah. You see it, they're transporting it. Right. And they, they had to be overwhelmed. The very, because the, because they don't have the room, they don't have the, the space for right. these people. And in I remember I just remember seeing beds along the walls all the way down and 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 like we would get there and there would be people there ready to just start taking these people out and then we'd 
be gone back down to the site and then come back down. And, and then, you know, in the middle of this, it's not like you had, you know, like the Iraqi police, they're not, they weren't as, as like, you know, uh, efficient and, you know, as structured as like you would say, our police force that would know exactly how to respond to a major chaos, you know, shutting off the roads here and here, making sure traffic stays out. No, we're trying to get around traffic. We're trying to get around. Life's still continuing. Life's still continuing. And like, we're trying to get around all this stuff and try to, you know, it's just trying to, you know, maintain, you know, our, in, the, in which the speed that we're moving, like we're trying to keep this up and also be safe also try to make sure that there's not any extra harm to anybody else, you know, cause like, how do we, you, for the most part, you think that the explosion is done and that's it, right? You think that's it. But at the same time, you still have to be in the back of your mind ready for anything else that could possibly happen. In pure carnage. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, this is the moment to take advantage, right? When everybody's going cha- chaotic, now is the moment to really take advantage of what's right. going on. I've actually heard that not to distract from your story, but yeah. I've heard that oftentimes like overseas or especially in uh, Afghanistan, there would be an explosion. And when people run to that explosion, there'd be a distraction for something else. N- not only a distraction, mm-hmm. but a second explosion. Yeah. Because people yeah. would run to that site to not only see what's going on, but to see if their loved one was there or help out. And there was a second explosion that day. There was, if you look it up, you can actually Google the date. I think it was November 18th of, of, uh, 2005. Someday in November, you can look it up and it's, there was like two or three explosions that day. And it was pretty, pretty intense day. I mean, you know, I actually, <laughs> in the whole bullshit of this whole story, the, besides obviously the lives that were lost and the in the, in the the human factor that the loss that went in, but um, because I didn't have my gear on, because like I said at the start of the story, that you know they had me strip all this all my gear to make them, me look like them. At the end of this whole thing. We got pulled out of the the. Um, uh, me and my buddy got pulled out of the the two weeks that we were supposed to spend with these guys, because that because because one of our because we were so close like in proximity our unit also they got called to this explosion so when our unit came our lieutenant colonel came and he had already known that we were partaking in this whole thing he saw us without some of the gear that we were supposed to be wearing. And so at that moment, he pulled us out. He's like, what are you doing? Yeah. And it was like, okay, now, yeah, it was fun. What you had, I guess that you were about to, you know, the things that we were doing were fun until it got real, I guess, for him. And, and at that moment we were, we got pulled, we got taken. I mean, did, I, you, I, get, did you get reprimanded though? No, my, 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 uh, my platoon sergeant did. Cause he told me about it later. And he, which he probably shouldn't have done, but he did because we were, we were pretty tight. But he was like, yeah, fuck, you know, sorry, drop that. But, like, he said, yeah, we, I got pretty, I got in trouble, basically, for. You got reamed out. Yeah, for, for the way I was dressed and stuff, which, you know, like, what was I going to do? Am I going to tell a Special Forces guy, I don't know, Lieutenant right. Colonel so-and-so right, says. Yeah, I got my wings. He says, I got to wear these guys, you know. <laughs> like, no, the Special Forces guys tell me to look like them. I'm going to look like them, you know what Why I mean? Why isn't Iraqi going to bomb another? Well, these aren't Iraqis. In, in, they're not. The these are terrorists inside the town. And, and like, But they're, they're Iraqi themselves by nationality, right? 
uh, ish, yes and no. You say like a lot terrorists, but they're still of that lot, origin. Well, a lot of times these people are coming from you know Syria. They're coming from you know the re- re- could be refugees or other people. The, basically, what here what what the Iraqis weren't the 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 fighting force, right? Like we went to Iraq. It's basically saying, hey. This is where we'll be. If you want to hash this out, this is where we're going to fight it out, right here in Iraq. That sucks for the Iraqi people, but that's what happened. We basically said we're going to go after Saddam and his WMDs, and instead what was really the message was, if you want to fight this out, we're going to be in Iraq and in al-Qaeda. You can go and recruit all the people you want. And bring. And that's, that's basically the message that I could, I, al-Qaeda took was that, hey – we will – the U.S. is going to be there. If that's where they're going to be, that's where we're going to fight them. And that's what happened. And so that a lot of people – that A lot of people – like if you've seen the series Generation Kill, no. if you, you should definitely watch that. That is the, uh, the tip of the spear, these Marines going in. And they had a Rolling Stone journalist that was embedded with them. And what was his name? All f- I don't remember his name. But it's all from his point of view. All the interviews and all the people, they have actual, they cut to actual interviews with the real people, real guys. But they were the tip of the spear. And the bodies and the people that they were killing, that they were fighting, they were checking their IDs. And a lot of these people weren't even from Iraq. A lot of these people were coming on student visas. They were getting however, however they could get to Iraq, to however Al-Qaeda could get them, or the Taliban, however they could get them into Iraq. They were doing that. I read Chris Kyle's book, American Sniper, and I remember him saying that when he wasn't in his Overwatch, he would he would go down and he would uh, I don't know the proper term for it, but he would he would go into these houses, you know, with like a unit of dudes, right? Mm-hmm. Squad. And, and- yeah. So mm-hmm. so they kick down this door, and there's a group of Eastern European like Chechnyans or something like that. I could be completely yeah. wrong on no, that. No, no, you're. Yeah. But there were there were clearly some Caucasian white dudes. That weren't American that had no business being, being there, there right. and they just they took them down. And I would say that those guys were see like okay for a person like Chris Kyle and like SEALs and Special Forces, like regular Army, regular Marines, we we're doing sub level shit, right? We're doing sub level shit. Those guys are seeing the real missions. Yeah, but there's no doubt about it. You provide but my, a, but my a point very is, important function. No doubt, no doubt. But my point is is that is that that for him, that story that he told about you know talking about white guys like from like you know Eastern European you know whatever. Those guys are very sophisticated. That's a very le- different level of sophistication. That's that's not regular army type mission. You know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, that's yeah. not a mission that I'm being sent in on, unless it's like unless this is like we're talking like Baghdad. In, in that case, it might be a little different, but um, the cells and stuff like that, like, like <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to say. Like the intelligence that that we get, if it's super good and it's on a and a card, like we have this, you know, we had like a deck of cards that had all the enemy terrorists on it, the top the top priorities, right? That goes to the seals. That goes to the the, the big the, the you know those guys that can. Guaranteed mission success. That's that's where that goes. Speaking of cards, I remember back in in the Persian Gulf, which was early nineties, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, I mean, I was born in eighty one, mm-hmm. so, so I'm not, I'm nine or ten, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember 
I remember us going to war. It was all over TV. Norman Schwarzkopf, you know, he's a big, imposing guy, white hair, you know what I mean? He was the guy. But I remember trading cards. Yeah. I remember cards that came out that my friends and I would buy. And yeah. we'd be like, oh, my God, I got an F-16. Yeah, I'll yeah, trade yeah. you for a Bradley tank, you know yeah. what I mean? Or I got Schwarzkopf, you know? I got Donald Rumsfeld. It was yeah, so yeah, crazy, yeah. right? Colin Powell or something yeah. like that, yeah. And you talk about, well, I it's hate like, to say it, but propaganda... But I mean, what? you know, you're selling cards. It's like candy cigarettes to yeah, kids. Yeah, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's a conditioning. Yeah. I mean, well, this was just something that was like an easy way for us to keep on our person. Like here, here's a, a deck of cards. It's as like an identification that you can put in your pocket. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like if we needed, like one of the things we do in basic training is vehicle identification where, you know, and, and, and you they give you a list of German tanks, British tanks, and all these different tanks. So you know wow. what tank belongs to what country. You know what I mean? Right. So very much as this deck of cards is the same way is that here's your terror. Here's your targets. Here's your, you know what I mean? So yeah. very much like that. And, and to go back to what you were saying about Who got the, the two of clubs. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think it was <laughs> one screwed of, over with that. I think it, like Gaddafi or not Gaddafi or whatever is uh <laughs> Uh, I forget his name, but he was a big target and got taken out like six months after we got left. But to go back to your story about, about, you know, being 10 years old and watching the original desert storm and stuff and talking about my dad, how he's big in the military. I remember to this day sitting on the couch, watching CNN footage of, you know, the war of desert storm with my dad sitting there 10, 11 years old next to my dad watching the war on TV. Like it was, I mean, that was just a, you know, in our lifetime, a pretty wild moment, I, I think, for us to be able to watch uh, war on TV, at least. Yeah, it was pretty intense. And I, I think there's certain moments in history where even when you're young, they, they carry with you to adulthood. And one of those was like the Challenger explosion for me. I was only like mm-hmm. five, six years old. And, you know, what memories do you remember from back then? But I remember constantly watching the replay of the, of the shuttle exploding. But, you know, going back to the Persian Gulf War, some of the memories that I remembered were the burning oil fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember uh, the Highway of Death. Mm-hmm. So my sister lives in Kuwait. And I went to visit her. I visited her and I went there for a wedding with my wife and we go and, and we got the history of, of what desert shield was the Mm -hmm. invasion of, of Kuwait by the Iraqis. Right. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know what the highway of death was. I remember the images and it, it was awful. So for those that don't know, um, all the Iraqis that invaded Kuwait fled and they fled down this highway, highway 80 and basically these, uh, from what I understand, there were A-10 warthogs came through and they there was a giant convoy escaping to Iraq, bombed the front or, or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, D- disabled the front, disabled the back, mm-hmm. and then it was just a shooting gallery. And you can look on Google and it's just, it's awful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a junkyard. And I drove that highway with... with you know, my sister and her husband and it's all cleaned out now. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty unspectacular, right? So there's a giant desert and you're on a highway, but for the longest time there was these burnt out trashed cars along the highway. And, uh, that was some of the imagery that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty surreal being there. Definitely. Yeah. I still think in a strange way, the desert is a beautiful place. I think the people, 
even though you fully don't understand it and you wouldn't necessarily want to live that way yourself, very religious, you know, very Muslim, call to prayer, those types of things. There's something fascinating about the people. And uh, and it's cool, you know. Yeah. It's it's just so different from what we understand. And I think that culture is, is beautiful. And it's very nomadic. You go out into the desert and people have these tents. Yeah. And they just, they're out there. They barbecued. The boys, they look at the stars, you know. And it's it's just something you don't even realize that exists until you're there. But, you know, I'm sure we can we can hash out you know your stories for a while because uh, yeah, I, I love hearing them and uh, <laughs> i mean we I, can talk for days on this definitely definitely um, could but i want to talk about coming back home uh i want to talk about how bizarre that must have been being in a scene of pure carnage and experiencing uh ieds people people looking to kill you mm-hmm. and you come home to Western civilization and all of a sudden there's bright lights in a grocery store and you hear people complaining about things that are just absolutely ridiculous. Can you kind of explain what that was like for you coming home? Well, can I say that you just nailed it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that that's exactly what it was. I mean, you, you know, I don't understand. I don't know how it could possibly be any different to be honest with you, because if you couldn't, if you go there and you experience all of those things and you see things that I, that I saw and not to say that I, you know, but if you went there, you definitely saw something and to come back home and to just, you know, act like that's not happening in a different part of the world or to act, you know, for you to go about your daily life that is now this now, or that is that is not that anymore, but is now this, in which you, like you said, go to a grocery store and you, you know, or you're in traffic and you know, you know, or if you just stuff like, you know, little things that uh, people do and the things that, that happen around you um, don't seem as important. They don't seem as, they don't seem real, you know. One of the biggest things that I had a trouble getting into again, that, I, that I've had struggled with was sports because sports is like an escape, right? It's a, it's a big escape for all of us. Um, and we, we tip, typically treat sports as like a way to, to escape and to, to take our minds off of what real life is. I couldn't, I, I no longer enjoy sports. I could no longer, you know, like I had moments. I didn't know that at all about you. I thought you were I was super sh- into sports. Huge into sports more than I am now. I'm like, I'm, I will say that now that I've been doing therapies and, and doing, you know, things for PTSD that I am now back into living a little bit more happily than I used to be. Um, but you know, getting back and that, you know, that struggle of getting back to normalcy, trying to ignore and forget about the things that you, that you experienced and to just go, Oh, I'm gonna, you know, walk to the park today and enjoy the sunshine and not think, you know, it's just that it makes things and tough to enjoy. It makes those things tough to enjoy anymore. And you, you know, you just kind of lose that. And, um, you know, I struggled when I, when I got back 
Um, I was I was in a bottle all the time. I was drinking. You know, my favorite drink was Jack Daniels. You know, the fifth was pretty easy to go through. Um, I mean, I had a little run with some pain pills, but in the my personality and the person that I am helped me get out of that. I mean, I I had a very good support system around me, and I have a great family. You know, I'm the oldest of, or I'm one of the oldest kids of eight kids. Are so you really? My parents are I separated, no but I have a bunch of brothers, and, brothers sisters. and one sister, man. So it's like, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like you have a good support system. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of people to, that you can that can help you out, right? And and you know, my like I said, my parents are separated, and they've been separated since I was five. So my my step parents are are have always very much been in my life and have you know been equal rocks as those same my you know my mom and dad um and they try you know your family tries to really help you out but they can only do so much and you can only you can only allow them in so much it's all up to you it's all up to you know what you know you're doing and like i said i um I got out of the military. I was medically discharged. I had an, I had I had two knee surgeries. I had a mess of my knee in Iraq towards like the tenth at the tenth month mark of my 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 deployment. I had messed up my knee. Got sent home. Um, two surgeries later, um, I ended up getting out, which was actually only a month early of the contract that I signed. So I ended up basically fulfilling my contract, and. Um, so I get out medically discharged. Um, I get a severance pay. That severance pay was blown within like a month. Like I, I think it was like ten grand. I had just blown just like In that a month. easily. Whoa. Booze, you know, like I was, you know, just partying, not doing, not being responsible, um, not anything I'd ever done before. You know, I'd had money from the military, and not like I was getting paid all kinds of money, but I hadn't learned how to manage money. And um, to be honest with you, I think that when I first started noticing a difference in my personality was when I got back, was on my two-week leave. And my two-week leave, I was just going crazy. I think I spent $2,000 in two weeks there. Just going, just partying every night that I was home. Not that this is rare. This is, I I would say there's probably hundreds of other people that have done the same thing as me when they were on leave. Just blew the money that they had made. You know, but it was different. Like, I was going off. Like, I was just going, like, it wasn't my personality, the way I was acting. You know, I was. So you come home, you're kind of keyed up. Very keyed up. You're very, yeah, you're, that's perfect word for it. It was very keyed up, very, you know, uh, 100 miles an hour, you know, not, you, you just, I just didn't feel normal. I just didn't feel myself. And, and um, you know, you basically, I, I would get, I got into a, a bad pattern and um you know it was tough to hold down jobs and you know couldn't find things couldn't keep something that was it would keep me happy or you know because you know back thinking back you know i joined the military because i didn't really have any idea what i wanted to do with my life i got out of the military and basically what i'd done in the military was good enough to get me into you know to be a police officer a firefighter maybe an emt or something like that. Like that's where I kind of wanted to go. I actually, I actually took EMT classes when I got back, 
And I fulfilled that, and I just didn't go after a job. And that's who you are. That's how you identify yourself as I'm a soldier. This is what I've done. This is what I've seen. And I was just quitting on myself. Like I was doing these things, but nothing at the end. And not like not fulfilling it. So then and I started doing, like I said, the EMT school. I did EMT school. <laughs> I finished it. I'd, my, my aunt was a nurse. I did 24 hours with her at the ER, which is part of the something you have to do to be an EMT. So I did that. Um, and uh, I, I, it was tough, man. I just couldn't figure. I couldn't find, I couldn't find a, a, a routine, really what I wanted to do. So looking back, do you recognize that as being PTSD or just that you're trying to reacclimate to society after being in a, a very stressful situation? In the grand scheme of things, we're still very early in this PTSD game. I think it was PTSD, but what the military doesn't help you with is reacclimation. They're not very well. They're not very. They're not. They didn't do a very good job of that then. At least I don't know how well they're doing now. I'm sure it's better than what it was when I was in because now PTSD is such a huge thing. What is PTSD? In so, your own words, because it's so, it's so impersonal. It's so cold. It's 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 a fucking acronym. Right? It's anxiety on a daily basis. Um, uncontrollable anxiety. It's just you. Um, You know, I had explosions. I had things happen near me. I had a lot of shot, you know, explosions happen near my brain. I don't know if I I de- I, I, I had not been diagnosed with a TBI. I don't know that. It's What's a, TBI? It's a traumatic brain injury. Um, I hadn't been diagnosed with that, but I've been diagnosed with PTSD. So with that diagnosis, I have to take away from it saying to myself, okay, is it my perspective? Is it things that I'm doing or is it things that I'm not doing? Is it thing? Is it my activities and my behavior? Is it, well, yes, it is. But why are, why is it my behavior? Why is it the things that I'm doing? Is there something else going on that was, that's causing me to do these things and not, and not know about it and just, you know what I mean? So like, you've been thrust into this realm of like psychoanalysis of like, who am I? How do I operate? Like, <laughs> 1000%. You were, you were down to the bare bones of like, yeah, like I'm is my stimulus and response. Yeah. And like, I feel like there are people that maybe aren't as aware of that as me that have, that have maybe probably have had a worse experience than me, but like, I'm very aware of what's going on in my head at the same time and not, you know what I mean? Like where you get caught up and you're just like catch myself. And I'm like, it's almost like a sub and unconscious experience. Where yeah. It's, it's just like, yeah. A mode of reaction. Right. 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 And you just kind of, uh, you go and, and, um, you, you know, anger management was one of the big things I had, um, to do. It was just, it's just tough to like perspective. Perspective is one of the biggest things that I had trouble with is when, you know, I like to equate it for like a job when your manager or boss is like, you know, you didn't do this right, but it doesn't really affect the grand scheme of the results. Like the results will still be the same, but you know, something in the middle of the process that you did was wrong. And like that would just set me off. Like, you know, those things would just like, 
the the nitty the the picking did you feel justified stuff. or were you confused like why am i angry yeah no i didn't at the time and i mean i i didn't notice it until i until marriage really until you know somebody pointed it out yeah well and you're just like you start realizing that you're affecting your when you're living with someone on an everyday basis and that and that your your everyday actions are affecting that person's life yeah then it starts to becoming like a real uh, something that you then then it becomes something that you notice. I haven't experienced anything near what you have experienced, but I've had my wife tell me you're being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sorry, babe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're like, yeah, I am kind of being an asshole. Yeah, and that's and that's what it is. It's like, and it's not, and it's and it and it's a little bit. And I know what you mean, and I'm not trying to say that you're, you know, but it's like it's more than that. As to whereas like. It's like, why are you doing that? Like, you, you know, expecting someone to read your mind or expecting, you know, like if I'm, you know, for for example, if my wife, if she, you know, and I say my wife, even though you know, you know her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um, I say, you know, like if she does something and I would have done it differently, getting mad at her and it, and like, even though that she got the result done getting letting that not only affect me and get mad but also then it ruining my day for hours so letting it affect me and then not talk to her for like hours just like you know she's a human being you know it's like she she you know if i was her and she did that to me i would be i would left the house i'd be pissed i'd be irate i would be not standing for, I wouldn't be, be with that person. You know what I mean? So then in that moment, those moments is when I really started. I mean, this is years later, man. You know, we're talking about like 2007, 2008 to 2010 was really rough, really rough, um, really rough time. And then from you know, you 2000, you 2010 you is when wife? I met, when I met okay. my wife, well, it was, became my girlfriend. And then, um, we got married in 2013 and, you know, you're after me. Yeah. So like we, you know, marriage struggles like anybody else. Um, but added on to that PTSD factor to where she's having to deal with a person, a soldier who she's never even, you know, she's not, she didn't know me before. She didn't know me how I, she's only known me as the person with PTSD. So good. Great. Right that she's able to love me even though I she have sees this. the best in you. She does. Like, right. That's what I have yeah, going for. That's you're what a good mo- dude. right. That's what motivates me to, 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 to do better, to go seek help was that, okay. Yeah, she did. She didn't know me. And, and, uh, but she, but she does know, me. you know, she, she didn't know me how I was before, but she could see that she could see what is there. And even though some of the bad overweighs the good, you know, when I started to go, um, eventually I was like last year after almost 10 years of finally dealing with this and, and, you know, like I had done Lexapro, I had done a bunch of different anxiety things that just, I'm not a big pill taker. I don't, I don't even take ibuprofen if I can. Um, and that's, this is somebody, this is coming from somebody who's a big cannabis user. So like 
you know, like I'd prefer to take an edible over an ibuprofen for pain management. Do you, you really think it has the same effect? Well, the or, or a stronger effect? The well, I I think it has a less harmful effect on your body in your and, liver. Yes, in your yeah. yeah, in your your internal organs. Yeah, absolutely. How are some vets able to come back from a deployment and just turn it off? Like we mentioned, Dick Winters earlier, and like Dick Winters said, coming back, he's like, I just had a job to do, and granted, you know, I I had to. You know, I'm just going to call it what it is. He's, he's mm-hmm. like, I, I had to kill some Germans, mm-hmm. right? And it was just the job. This is what I had to do. I realized that I had purpose. How is it that some guys are able to do that and, and it's challenging for others? Well, and honestly, I would argue, I would argue that there was, this was happening. This, that PTSD isn't something that just came along in the last since 2005, yeah, it's just since not the Iraqi war, or right. the Iraq war, OYF, right. it's something that we're humans. Like it's something that's always been around. It's just now we're addressing it because, like you said, the go on about your day, the go on about your life. That was that was that era, right? Kick, you know, rub some dirt on it, keep it yeah, moving. That yeah, was the it was, era. It was much more machismo. Like we don't talk about feelings. Yeah, you know and I mean? would I would guarantee you that that if there was any sort of statistic keeping from that day, that it would be, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because let me let me just say that their warfare experience. You know, we're running through we're running through a battlefield, and boom, my buddy just drops, and I got to keep running. That's crazy to me. Like that's not my war experience. That's not my war experience. We're you know we're we're driving along, and we got to stop. And and my buddy goes down. Like yeah, we're gonna continue to suppress. We're gonna continue to lay down fire. And but we're gonna we're gonna figure out a way to to help this person. You know, that wasn't the case then. You had to you know it was like a body drops. You're going. We're just going. We're moving. We're moving. We're moving. Now granted, there were times you. Would, try to help there were medics in these platoons and there were people to help but the mentality is was totally different now i would guarantee you the ptsd was still existent because think about it think about how many alcoholics and womanizers and abusers came through the 50s and 60s like that's those were those guys now grant i'm not going to say that that's but uh i can't imagine that going through that war experience you could not come out with some sort of change in your mentality. And, and especially, especially then granted we, we are different now. We do live in a different era where we have, you know, social media and things that really shine a light down on awareness of, you know, black life and lives matter. We're really focusing on helping black people right now because of the, what's going on right now. And, and what should have happened years and decades ago, we're finally doing now. But what should have done back in World War II was, was really assessing like what these guys were doing and coming home with, even Vietnam. Like Vietnam was even was, was you know a little bit more of what we're used to as far as like life as we know it now. These you know, these guys were very much affected and very much treated poorly when they came home and probably had a worse experience coming home than I did. So, yeah, one thing I appreciated about the HBO series, the Pacific and, you know, we're talking about real life compared to Hollywood. Right. But one thing I, I thought was mm-hmm. really interesting at the end when, you know, the, I 
forgot the dude's name, but um, he comes back from the Pacific Theater, and they use him as like this, and they show the terror that that he's dealing with. Like he he ended up becoming like uh, a successful man, educated. I think he became a doctor, mm-hmm. and he would have nightmares every night, screaming, crying, and right. that was just that was. I don't want to say the new normal, but that was the profound effect it had on him. And 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 no matter what, like you said, so the, the, your question was, how do you deal with it? How do you what do you how do you continue on? And you just it's just like the person that you are that got you into the military. If there's a little bit of that still in you when you get out, chances are most of us do have it that you'll be able to 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 fight against it. Um, there are buddies and friends and guys that have had worse experiences than me that have had, you know, a worse time dealing with their post-military experience than I have. Um, there's guys that have had less experiences than me that have had a hard time dealing with their post-military life. And it's all about just who you are and what you can withstand in your own mental you know, state, I guess. And also the help that you have available to you, the support system, but you have to, it's all personal. Like, you you know, it's a, you have to have that want and that drive to really get better. Um, because, you know, I'm going to go into the VA real quick here because I deny, I, I really was, I really shunned off the VA because I really thought every time I was going to go there, they were just going to send me home with prescription pills. And like I said, I'm not a pill guy and I don't want to be, I don't like taking pills. So, um, I always thought when I was going to go there that they were going to send me home with pills and I was going to have to take these. And then they were going to, you know, check again with me later of like how my regiment was going. And, you know, it wasn't going to go be going good because I wasn't going to take them. So that's why I never went. But then after being married, and like I said, you know, when you feel like you're affecting someone else's life, then you, you, um, you, you kind of have to like start to take it serious of like how you're going to basically live this life that you have, continue on, but also still be happy. And, and so I was like, you know, what? I'm going to go to the VA. I'm going to become part of the statistics because you know, we skipped over, we haven't really touched on a lot of this, but you know, one of the things that I did and want to focus on was in my previous job was to, you know, try to reach out to veterans and military people and just, you know, help them in their life. And I was very vocal about my PTSD experience on social media. And so I get a lot of reach out. I get a lot of people reaching out to me and saying, Hey, you know, you know, um, you know, I'm doing this, I'm trying this. And I'd say, you know, are you going to the VA? Are you getting, are you becoming part of the statistic? Because we need you to become part of the statistic so we know what's hap- what's working, what's not working, right? And if you don't become part of the statistic, we don't have track of you. We can't keep track of you. Interesting. And so, and 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 a lot of you know, there's a lot of veterans that probably think, you know, I don't want to be kept track of, you know, and and because they are turned off by that, but we need you to do that for, for our, for the greater good, for the greater, you know, goal here. And so I was telling people to go to the VA and I was like, you know what, if I'm going to tell people to go to the VA, I got to go to the VA. So I started going to the VA 
and this was November or October. This is October of of um, of 2018. I started going to the VA. Start sitting in these classes, and it's like me and four other veterans, and one guy leading it who is also a veteran, Vietnam veteran, and he's talking to me about, you know, he's talking about his alcohol abuse from his personal from his previous you know time and his um, opioid abuse and and now it's starting to now I'm I could feel like okay now I'm doing the right thing because because I'm sitting in a room with a guy who is actually sharing his experience with me and that I can relate to and and now I feel like I'm making progress, right? So four weeks of this, and I've and I started to create like a bond with this guy. It was Scott, and I'm like, you know, you know, I reach out to him and say, hey, man, you, what you're talking, what you're doing, because he's a peer, basically, it's like a peer guidance therapy. And that was my first, you know, real breakthrough of, you know, hey, this is going to be, this is good, this is actually helping me. I can, you know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm seeing what I'm doing, my behaviors and my activities, and that's what it was. He was he was saying these were the things that I was doing, and these are the things. This is this, and you know, he would talk about how his kids hated him, and and how they, you know, that he couldn't go out into social situations because he would overreact and get angry and get pissed off, and then you know eventually that pushed his kids away from him, and now he's in his sixties, and you know his kids are in their twenties and thirties, and and that you know he wanted you know he got to a point where he wanted to make sure that he kept that relationship and so he you know that's what led him to where he's at now and so having that that that's shown in front of me that person basically going through the same thing that I had gone through minus I don't have kids and I didn't have you know but I could feel that I was pushing people away and I was isolating myself to an extent and so it wasn't just necessarily you had to follow through on what you were telling other people. You realized that you needed to go yourself. 1,000%. I find it interesting because I've heard from certain addicts that if you want to help yourself, help other people. And that's probably what your boy Scott was doing too. Yeah, and you're right. And because, uh, you know, um, yeah, I was telling people, like, you should go to the VA because that's what's going to help. And lo and behold, I'm not, you know, I'm finally doing this and I'm saying, okay, my own, my own advice to others is, was good. And, um, you know, it's actually working for me. And that was that I ended up finishing. That was the first class. I ended up finishing four, four classes after that. I ended up going for almost, almost a full year and it ended up being breathing classes into meditation, cool. Cool. into um, you know mindfulness, a lot of uh, CBT, which was uh, cognitive behavior therapy, a lot of that. It's got to seem strange at first, too, right? I mean, yeah. it's got to seem very hippy-dippy, like, what am I doing? Is it this is. shit really going to work? You have to go into it with the mindset that you are there ready to you, – you, uh, you have to have already assessed that you are the way you are and that you, um, and that you don't like it. You have to have already understood that you that you see the things that you do on a daily basis, your behaviors, your activities, the things that are sending you into, you know, anger, rage. Um, you know, these were these were these were the things that were happening to me. And once I saw them, and I was able to, okay, what what am I doing? What's happening? Where you know, like in um, on tra- in traffic, for instance, some guy cuts me off. That would affect me for two hours. 
yeah, and it wouldn't. You know, it's just like you. You know, normal people be like, yeah, finger to you, keep it moving, right? No, I'm like, fuck this guy. I'm going. You know, I'm back at the house now, and it's like, you know, my wife's asking me something, and it's like I'm short with her. Right. It's like, fuck this guy. Right. You know, he. You know, it's it's just like the whole day is ruined because I can't. I can't uh, basically manage my own anger, right? I can't manage my own. I can't handle this stuff that I'm dealing with. So I notice when I'm upset with my wife, I don't like outright verbally abuse her, right? I'm I'm not like super asshole, but I'm short. That's how she knows when there's something up and she's like, why are you being a dick? Yeah. Because I'm short. Yep. I'm snappy. I'm like, whatever. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And, and it's like, and you know, when she does that to me, if she would to do that to me, I would call her out on that. Right. And she would not call me out on that. And that's why I love her so much <laughs> because she could see the things that I was going through and know that it would pass. And because she's a normal person, right? But that because, patience can wear thin. Yes, and absolutely, the patience can wear thin, and you and and you never know where you, you know. And I and I was scared. I was scared to see where that was going to leave me, especially knowing that she was the reason why I had had so many positive changes up until this point. Because I was, like I said, I was in a rougher spot than I was now. Now that I'm still dealing with things, now I'm having to, you know, it was a it was a level of of consciousness that I needed that I was that I I'm glad that I finally assessed and and now you know going through the meditation and going through that mindfulness awareness and and the CBT now I have these tools in my toolbox is that as that they they like to say that you can go back to and say and 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 notice your behaviors notice your activities notice the things you're doing that would lead into those anger moments and that negativity that would last for hours and avoid that because now you have these tools in your toolbox right so i would say oh you're i would say like a guy getting the guy pulling me out, uh, pulling in front of me, cutting me off. Now, re- instead of yes, would still get the bird. Fuck that guy. Still fuck that guy, right? <laughs> right. But instead right. of it, instead of I don't it, care how much woo side you're. Yeah, doing. yeah, exactly. Still <laughs> fuck that guy. But in, instead of it lasting now for hours, now I can assess it and say to myself, "We're not going to let this happen. We're not going to let that affect." The relationship you have with your wife. Yeah, like that refractory period yeah. is a lot shorter. Yes. Compartmentalize it. Right. It, it, you know, there's still that, that level of anger, you know, that, that, that initial. But it's not. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. But it's not like you've reached that, that, that achievement. It's still an ongoing practice it's, that you have to practice very day ongoing. Day, You're right. Week after week. But it, but it would have been less manageable had I not gone through those classes. Had I not been able to equip myself with those tools to, to be able to recognize my behavior or, or, or to say, you know, you've done this before. The result was this. And, and did you like it? No. So are you going to make that change? Yes. That's, that's where I'm at. That's where I was. And that's now where I'm and and all those activities, all of that stuff beforehand was affecting me on keeping a job. And that's what, that's why now that I'm at where I'm at and what I'm doing, what I'm doing now is, is able to be more successful because I was, because I assessed those things, because I took the necessary steps to combat them and equip myself with 
with, uh, you know, a way to overcome them because like I said, it would be so intense that it would just ruin my entire day. So I just, you know, now, now, you know, now I'm growing cannabis on a daily basis and, you know, I'm able to work with other people that even though, um, sometimes, you know, like I like to say that I, I like to hold myself to a certain standard, excuse me, as far as my work ethic goes and on in past jobs, if somebody wasn't meeting my standard, I would get kind of short with that person, you know, like, yo, what are you doing? Like, yo, don't do that that way. Do it this way. Don't, you know, instead now I'm allowed, now I just allow myself to, to, to do my, to worry about me. And you think and that's less, directly related to the cannabis? 1,000%. And with the therapy to team together. Yeah. So I definitely want to get into that. But at the same time, I want, to, I want to backtrack a little bit because you talk about the post-war experience. You talk about living in a bottle. You talk about going to the VA and mm-hmm. you're getting prescribed these pills, Lexapro, mm-hmm. opiates. It's just this cocktail of what seems like at this point disaster. Right. Yeah. Because you're because even though PTSD, like you said, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. Right. We're we're trying to figure out the tools. We're we're, we're figuring it out. Right. We're the generation that's figuring it out. Which sadly, very sadly, leads Mm -hmm. into this this awful trend of suicide that we're seeing with vets. Mm -hmm. And I think the number is somewhere disgusting, like uh, like over 20 people a day. Yeah. I know it's been 22 a day. I know it's been, you know, the average is around 20 to 22 a day. What is that? That I know it's a hard thing to to even speculate, right? Yeah, but very much. What is it that makes a vet want to commit suicide? And, and that's just a very blunt way of saying it. I'm not trying to sound insensitive, mm-hmm. but is it just a matter of like, I can't turn off the voice. I can't, I can't reconcile with the things I've seen or the things I've done. What is it? I think what happens for, and I, it, and I'm still standing here living speaking. So I can't, it's hard for me to speak for someone who has committed suicide and they, their personal experience. Um, and I feel like that should just, that has to be absolutely said by anybody who tries to dive into this situation because we don't, Granted, if you're living, you don't know what a suicide person experiences. Now, if you've tried to commit suicide and you lived through that experience, then you can definitely speak on it. But I have not done I, – I have an overwhelmingly huge passion to live life to the fullest. My problem was is that – and this may be what gets in the way of others – is that – my problem was is that I wasn't it wasn't happening the way that I was used to and I've been on a desperate continuous search since I've become conscious of what's been going on to figure it out. And um because of that that is why I'm still here I think and able to draw and to talk and to you know what I mean just alive and able to to do these things. I think that for other people, and like I said, it's tough for me to make this real assessment, that they are overwhelmed by the thought and feeling of not ever returning to that person that they thought they were before the military experience or before they had that traumatic experience. 
So they're so far gone from that person that they thought they once were or were once were that they have just been beaten so much up in their own mental state that they that they think that they can't return to that and it'll never be that way. And That's my tough. yeah. That's heavy. I mean, to think that you'll never be the person that you thought you were, I can't imagine, like, that's a that's a struggling thought to deal with, like, because that's a lot of self-doubt, that's a lot of, you know, it's not necessarily healthy self-deprecation, you know what I mean? Like, when you feel like you can't get the same enjoyment, like I was talking about with sports, like I was, like I was unable to enjoy sports because it was, it wasn't, like, real to me, it was just these it was just not real life. Sports to me wasn't, and and uh, I'm able to to do it now. But you know, I feel like there's a lot of normal situations that we deal with, especially as Americans. That we that especially as Americans that we get that we are able to experience and and are very unique to our life experience to our lifestyle and our culture that when we come back to it, it's tough. I think that's a great point because we're also expected to fulfill certain roles in our society. I know it sounds philosophical, but we're expected to be a husband, a father, uh, uh, somebody in the community, right? Where you go to that, you go to that barbecue and you have that beer and you're like, Hey Bill, what's up? You know what I mean? You're expected to have this certain approach and this demeanor, even if you don't, you know, you represent this role, you're supposed to act in a certain way. And when you don't see it through that lens, I, I would imagine it would be hard. You would, feel lost. Would you, would you agree? Yeah. You, f- you just feel, I just, f- I think, I think there's a lost feeling there where you, you know, the things that you're, you love and the things you love to do, that feeling is gone. Do you think there's a lack of connection between the people? That's that 100% true. Um, you lose the connection with the people that you love. You lose the connection with your family um, because maybe the family members don't share the same experience that you had or the same perspective now that you share. Or even the same politics. Why the fuck were you over there? Or that even. Not that they would say it in that way, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, just any type of, you know, questioning the decisions that you make would definitely set you off or set me off. You know, like, I mean, I've had plenty of political fights with my parents and about, you know, them assuming what my service was about. And, you know, and I've, I've, I've set them, I've kind of, you know, kind of made the point that this was, you know, that was not the case. That's interesting because you say that even though at the beginning you said that your dad was gung ho, he was like, I support you. We come from a military family. I'm all about it. Uh But afterwards they're trying to understand your, your, true intentions well just the because because we're navigating this ptsd and they started seeing you know i mean if there's anybody that knows you better than than yourself it's your parents right so um you know my parents could definitely tell that i wasn't the same person that i used to be and that my experience had definitely changed me but you know, we were we were the first generation to deal with PTSD as a as a as a real social thing. So for them, it wasn't something that they were used to. You know, granted, my dad was a big military supporter, but he wasn't used to the 
my dad, I called my dad 2007, 2008. I called him and was like, hey, I'm having this, I'm having a panic attack. I don't know what's going on. My dad had to take me to the hospital. Whoa. And I'm, I'm sure then he probably didn't, I'm sure at that moment he didn't know what was going on with me because, you know, he probably hadn't even heard the word post-traumatic stress disorder. And, he probably never even heard people don't that. even know how to digest panic attacks. They're like, oh, whatever. You know, they kind of brush it off as like being fake. But, Dude, I thought I mean, my so, world was enclosing on me. Right, yeah, yeah. right, right, right. You get that, that enclosure and, mm-hmm. and you feel that depersonalization, like you're not yourself and you feel like this overwhelming sense of... of panic and spinning yeah. spinning head and and i'm not even I mean, in a, that's that's just from yeah i want yeah. to tell you but i would imagine those symptoms are the same one thousand percent and i'm I'm not even in like at this moment when i'm when i at that moment i'm not even you know experiencing anything but like just sitting in a room in a house in a small town in indiana in one of the most safest places you could be right and so it's just it 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 just it's all up in here it's all here because when you if if i wasn't in here i'd be out there doing everything doing the things that i normally do swimming canoeing kayaking things like that that i normally would do you know those things had just gone like i wasn't interested in anything really at uh, at Have this you point started to find your way back to that Oh yeah, definitely. And I and it wasn't too too far long after that where I could start. I knew the physical activity was one of the ways that I could help combat this, because um, you know, putting yourself through complete exhaustion is the best way to get rid of stress and anxiety. And that's you know one of the main factors of PTSD and one of the main you know um, symptoms or, or causes of PTSD is, is that you're just constantly um, anxious and feeling unsettling, you know, unsettled, just very uptight. Um, you know, just not yourself, not normal. It can't be comfortable. Like just saying, Oh, I'm going to go step out on my back deck here, enjoy a cup of coffee or have a, have a drink or, and just enjoy and just relax without, a thousand thoughts going through your head about what you need to do or how you're selling your, or how you're not, uh, living up to your capabilities or how you're not, you know, you know, living, <laughs> not being the, the, the best man that you Full could be. Yeah. Right. That, but I think we, we feel that anyways. I mean, just, just in general, no it's doubt. like a, it's a quiet angst. Right? And, I, and I, no. and that's something that everybody deals with. If you have any sort of type of, of goal and, and, um, aspiration or anything like that. But it's very much like intensified when you have, have, you know, cause one of the things that I, when you fight in a war, that's like that, that's history. That's history in our, in our planet and our, in our, of. yeah. And our, you, in our, in our book, like that's going to go in a book, you know what I mean? But like when you, if I was to go work at LA fitness, like that doesn't mean dick, right? <laughs> right yeah and that's one of the things that you yeah it, it's like that's the problem that you that's another one of the big problems you deal with is that you step out of this huge thing that you've done this huge thing that you you know that you've lived up to 
that is you come home and everybody's like, thank you for your service and thank you. Is thank that you a weird for, thing, by the way? It's hugely weird. Yeah, you're it's just incredibly like, weird. Thanks. You like you don't know me. You have no idea what I went through. Well, I just tell people. Just, I just say, you know, I really appreciate you saying that, and I, I'm thankful for you for saying that. Um, because they didn't have to say it, right? They didn't have sure. to say it, but they did. And I try to, I try to, I try to make them feel like I am very thankful for them saying that I do, but it's very weird because now it's like, you know, we all want to live great lives. We all want to act, at least for me, I want to live a life that I feel like I have left an impact on, on something, on, on anything really. And, um, and and uh, that has been another one of my my thing hard things to overcome was that how am I going to find that next thing that's going to give me that feeling that I was making a real change of purpose. that was yeah that I was fighting for something that I was doing something that's that's always been what's I I guess looking back and even talking right now that's always been what has really driven me was that I need to do something. Like I said, what is my direction? What is my goal? Where, is, where am I going? And that was what pushed me into the military before. And, and, and if you had that before, post-military, it's even harder to find. Right. Sometimes. And, and what a lot of people don't understand is being a man, right? There's a, lot, mean, of re- there's a lot to there. There's a lot there. And we won't go into the <laughs> we, quote of, we won't of go being into a man. It, but, yeah. but there is a core of what it means to be a man, yeah. right? And we, we, we talk societally, uh, I don't even know if that's a word, but like mm-hmm. what it means to be a minority or what it, what it means to be a woman. And, and those are all valid things and, and very important things to talk about. But being the core of a man is to be a protector, to be a provider, and to, to be that rock. And, and I would imagine that it's very tough doing that. It is. I mean, I mean, especially when grappling you f- with, with literally the life and death struggle that you dealt with. Yeah. And you feel when you feel weak on an everyday basis, it's hard to be that strong person. Yeah. So I'm not the first person to say this, but, uh, there's a famous poet that said most men lead quiet, lead lives of quiet desperation. And they take that song with them to the grave. And I'm not the first podcaster to say that. <laughs> But I, uh, I went for a walk with my wife the other day, and we were walking the dogs. I don't know how it came up, but I said the same thing because I was talking about, hey, I'm not happy where we are in life. I'm not, I, I, I want more, mm-hmm. right? I want to be able to provide more. I, I want, you know, I'm not, I'm just not happy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then I went into the famous poet, da-da-da, I think it was Thoreau, right? And she was just like, eh, all right. So there, there's a disconnect. Right. People don't know what it's like to be a man and to full, to have to fulfill a certain role, especially when you're married, especially when you have kids. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. It, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure to be a, a man, to be, uh, to be a respected man, to be a man's uh, man, a man's man, to be um, of the rock, the provider. There's a lot of pr- pressure, especially. Um, when your grandfather or your father comes from a generation that has that, that's been beaten into their heads. And so, you know, and so it's, we have a very, like we have a huge responsibility on, or a huge amount of pressure on living up to, uh, maybe somebody else's 
ver- vision of us or, or our own vision of us. And like you said, you felt like, I don't know what it is. I just, and it's not like you're unhappy with your relationship or your necessarily your status in life, Correct. but you just want to be doing more. Like you just have this, you have this voice in your mind that is driving you to do more that because you, because really what's going on is that you, unwilling to accept mediocrity and you just you know like that's what it is and it's just and that's a good thing it's a good thing to have it but it's also a good thing to be able to tell yourself okay you know like am i to it's also a good thing to reassess where you're at right it's also a good thing to reassess what you do have the things that you have already accomplished and the things that you have like for instance getting married you know, your wife and for me, my wife, my wife has been like, she is everything to me. And if I don't have, if I did not have her, like I shout out to Miss College. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like she is uh man, I'm starting to get a little teary out here, but she, um, she really has kind of redirected me, you know, kind of pushed me on this path that I'm finally on that's kind of brought me to where I am. And, and, and like you're, like you said in the story, you, she was just, you know, your wife was just like, hmm, yeah. yeah, because she is so happy with you and the way that things are like, she's so content with, or that. she's just hyper focused on something else. Like, like going to school and or her what, next test. But thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but like, like yeah. my wife is very much focused on like, I appreciate that. Yeah. No, but seriously, <laughs> she's like, my wife is like, doesn't like her job. She she told her boss like in the last couple of weeks that she needs to be challenged more wow. and that she wants more responsibility even though she's already even though the boss that she had That's is incredible above her. because some people just want to get by. But right. the boss that's above her Yeah, it was fired. And well not not fired, but quit, but she's been doing that person's job since October through the pandemic, through all this stuff and she works in HR, so you can imagine that that's like, you know, like she's like the main purpose or the main focal point through this whole pandemic thing that we're going through so she's had a lot of responsibility and she's challenging them to give her more and it's like it's a rare thing yeah and it's like you know uh, i don't think that i think i know to your point of yeah i think that's personal pressure that we've put on ourselves and also generational pressure that's been put on us isn't that interesting yeah There's but a trickle down generational effect definitely and it's undeniable yeah 100% like we are you know what your grandpa did right yeah your great grandfather was i mean and if they and chances are if they fought in world war 2 how hard how how hard is that to and live isn't up it to isn't crazy that most of our history is defined by the battles that are fought and the wars that are fought it's exactly so you talk about working at la fitness it's a joke. It's, it's, it's a joke, and, and no <laughs> disrespect also, to LA Fitness, right? But I mean, in the, the people that work there, honestly, right. those people are doing their job on an everyday basis, and they're people. They have to. They're doing right. what they need to do. But it wasn't enough for me. You know what I mean? Like, it, and, and it it's an it really is enough though. It really is. Like, it, it's a it's a respectable job, and you should be able to do it. And people should be able to do it. But like, uh, coming from a from a job and a, and a life experience that I had and that, that people in the military have, like you're constantly having to challenge yourself. You're constantly trying to live up to an experience or to a level that you just are never going to actually reach again. Like it's never going to happen again. It's you know what I mean? Thing to think. Yeah. Like I'm never gonna, I'm never going to, but I've accepted that. 
finally, after, what was it, two, 2007 when I got out, now it's 2020, so 13 years later, or, or up until this, when I started the therapy at the VA, that's when I finally started to accept that, you know, man, the things, you're, things that are happening are only because you're doing it to yourself, man. Like the things that I'm doing, the, th- the the behavior and the activity, the anger that I was doing, that I was dealing with, was only because I was I was doing that to myself. It's all the cerebral trap. I was trapped up here, trying to push myself into something, trying to push myself to something that was unrealistic. That's maybe not going to happen. So you just, you know, I think I, you're a little hard on yourself. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's and 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 the PTSD is a, a factor in that when the anxiety sets in, the depression sets in, sets in and you don't feel like you're living up to your to your full potential. Now, that's a now that's a different experience than some, you know, some people that have the TBI. I think that's really where the the that suicidal tendency really lies there's like a, a, a misfiring or there's like a rewiring of the brain that's just and some people have, have to undo that a constant ringing in their in their the tinnitus yeah that yeah. they've got you know and so that that can be tough to deal with on a daily basis um so like i said there uh, everybody has their own experience and and there are people that have had worse experience than me and i acute and i accumulate i equate that to the suicide as some as a more traumatic experience than I had to deal with, even though that I, I had my own fair share. I would make the argument though, that you're really fortunate in the sense that you are able to recognize, you are able to detach, so to speak and recognize and be mindful of this is what I'm feeling. These are my emotions. This is what I want to uh, be, but I might not necessarily be able to attain it and yeah. based on your personal experience based on your military experience and I would say having a desire to help people has led you to combat cultivators. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And just getting into cannabis, really, that's because I know that that's our answer as as PTSD. You firmly believe 1000%. I 1000% believe that cannabis and, and, um, the properties of the plant once properly researched separated and and really scientifically dove into will finally what is it though what what is what is combat cultivators okay before we get into the weeds yeah, of, yeah. of the the benefits of mm-hmm. it so uh, the combat cultivators is basically um right now it's just basically a social media a couple of social media accounts that me and a couple of my buddies um, have ran and created. Um, basically just showing us out there cultivating and doing, you know, cannabis and, and being involved in cannabis. Um, the ultimate goal is to have our own little grow house, grow experience. Oh, I thought that's what it was. I thought it was a grow operation. We're not quite there yet. Um, right now I'm working for another company kind of learning that experience. Like I want to, um, gain that knowledge of having having to run a grow house and and to um because i you know you can you know plants are um 
the, the cannabis plant and the cycle that it goes through, there's all, there's very many different things that you can experience and that it can show you. And you have to have to actually physically be involved in that plant's life cycle to actually learn about it. Right. So that's kind of what I'm doing is I'm trying to just, you know, head first dive right into that. So I've been working with a company called Viola, which is in downtown Detroit. And, um, one of the top brands in the cannabis industry. And so I just been gaining that knowledge of, of really how to, to grow the plant and to see that, you know, like if a plant's experiencing what it's experiencing, if it's deficient on something or if it's, you know, if it needs, you know, nutrients and whatever, that's kind of what I'm trying to learn here and, and be able to, to bring that over so I can start, you know, a full, the combat cultivator experience. So, the idea is that we would be able to, you know, house veterans that would that would, you know, work um, and work around other veterans that have the same experience, that have had PTSD, that have had trouble working in regular uh, work environments, and that, that have struggled in working in regular work environments around people that don't share that life experience. Right, so. This is what I've exp- what I've struggled with up until this point was having a job, holding it on a job that was worthwhile, right? So now that I finally found, you know, when I was growing growing on my own, there's a therapeutic level in growing cannabis that you can just see a plant start from finish, which is something that we do in the military, which is, you know, setting a goal, getting, you know, seeing, you know, uh, starting here, finishing here repeatedly doing that over and over and over that's what happens so you have a goal in mind you reach that goal you you harvest you harvest your buds and you you take them down and you sell them and you see how good your product is at the end and that's that's kind of what gives you that that uh satisfaction right that 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 um uh what's the word i'm trying to think of i'm trying to you know when you really uh like the appreciation you have for your your something that you're really dedicated to but that's really what you know the idea is is that we will um allow and create an environment for these veterans to come work in around other veterans and and know that you're working next to somebody who cares just as passionately about growing cannabis as you who has who has the same work ethic and experience as you So, so there's passion that goes into it because in the military, you count on that person next to you, just like in a team sport. You're, you know, like in football, you know, 11 people on the field, one person has one job, but if those 11 people don't do their jobs collectively, that job does not get done to the task and, and to the to, – you don't reach the goal that you want, right? i got to be careful with navigating these questions, but with that grow operation taking place and having those people in place that have the same – passion as you do mm-hmm. to get to an end goal and create that great product that's going to help other people. How do you get that out? How do you get that out to the veterans? How do you identify them? Especially because even though it's legalized at certain state levels, federally it's not. Like how do you, are you asking like how you get to, how do you get the product to them or how do you get those yeah, people to come to you? Both. Okay. So, um, uh, basically I would just create that. I would just have to, you know, just like any normal business or company, just it's awareness just, is just, word of mouth. Yeah, right? right. To try to create that word of mouth or create that awareness of you know what we're trying to actively um, you know accomplish here, and um, 
the other side of it is making sure that you're getting them the medicine that they need and the 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 product is is the quality of the product uh, reaches effective you know what i mean that you can get the job done therapeutic yeah that right and that um um that they have confidence in your product that they're going to get you're going to get people been receptive yeah i mean um i mean there's a lot of veteran growers out there there's a lot of military veteran growers out there that are doing a lot of good work that are kind of have the same thing uh in mind that i have um and you know luckily i have luckily my military experience i was surrounded by a lot of guys my age that were you know not younger 17 18 year olds but but really more mid 20s like when i was in in the military so we had a lot of mature like we were you it makes know, a difference. pretty mature group of guys and now that we're all out and you know you know a lot of these guys are um and two of the guys, the two guys that I'm involved with, um, one's Bruce and one's Paul. Paul is a um, uh, former, worked for uh, distribution for, like he did all the distribution for Johnson & Johnson. Huge company. I mean, he's up high in supply and, and supply chain and distribution and, and how to manage that for them. And then this other guy, uh, well, actually, I think he, he switched to Verizon. Now they both work for Verizon because uh, – so Bruce is, does like client acquisition and goes from Johnson and Johnson to Verizon. To, to Verizon, yeah. That's an interesting right. Well, that was because Bruce was working for Verizon. So he kind of got that connection to okay. to help him out over there. Um, but they, we both have like a they both have a large business background, and they both know you know how to to create the business, start a business. So that was, it's great that we have a group of guys in our from our unit that have. We can all just kind of that, rely that's how you on know these guys. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We can that we can say, hey, um, you know, you do this, I'll do this, or you do that, and I, you know, I can take care of this because this is what I'm good at. And you know, I like that it's a network. Yeah, yeah, and they and we're both and we're all you know they're in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, so we have a footprint through the country that we can help try to to kind of pass spread out, you know. Being in Michigan and New Jersey, which are two medically, uh, oh, cool, yeah, safe spaces, so that's good. Um, so I'm looking at my phone right now. I'm not trying to be rude, no, but yeah. uh, I just saw five hours ago. So Rogan posted uh, a repost of Elon Musk, one of his posts, and it's pretty interesting. I think it's relevant to what we're saying. And pretty much, Elon, I'm going to read it for word, mm-hmm. word for word, said. Selling weed literally went from major felony to essential business, quote unquote, open during pandemic in much of America. And yet many are still in prison. Doesn't make sense. Is it right? No, it doesn't make sense because I was actually hired. um, I interviewed for this job in September. It is now June. And I started this job in March, which was like at the very beginning of the pandemic. So essential business is like (laughs) that's we are an essential business. Like we provide medication for people and, um, it, it, that quote is very crazy to think about how we've still federally schedule one technically. And yet we are an essential, essential business. So, you know, like I had to carry a letter of, to allow me to travel to work during the pandemic. 
I, mean, I had to keep. I had to carry a letter in my car just in case I was pulled over by. Did you ever get pulled over? No, I, I did. I didn't letter? get. I didn't. Um, I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but it was you know, just a nice something that you needed to carry just in case it happened. So I noticed that nowadays uh, a lot of the research is going into veterans with PSD who are uh, going through clinical trials with MDMA, aka mm-hmm. ecstasy, and they're receiving favorable decisions from the FBI. FDA. Uh, FDA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. That'd be a little The weird. FBI too, though. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. So from the FDA, and it's really encouraging. And I, I'm trying to, you know, figure out where, where I'm just trying to wrap my head around it, yeah. I guess. I'm trying like to figure how out, like, what is, what is the best route? Because what you say is, is uh, you're promoting a therapeutic route through cannabis right Mm -hmm. but for me i'm more cerebral sometimes i feel like i'm a a prisoner of my own mind right Right. and and not saying that i've ever done cannabis but from (laughs) what i've heard from other people (laughs) yeah right is that um your mind can wander you know what i mean you're 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 I don't know. You just, you, yeah. you think a lot, but it, do you think that is the route for somebody that's seen a lot of shit and, and just been through a tough experience? Or do you mm-hmm. think that psychedelics is the route? Or, and, and I know MDMA is not a psychedelic. Right. No, I, I think, I think what we're going to end up in is that <laughs> MDMA and DMT are going to be like a big, like psilocybin is going to be a huge, huge game changer. What's psilocybin? What's the? That's the actual reactive agent, and that's the hel- the hallucinogen. That's what's in the mushroom that they. That's the active which one ingredient. is that? Is that DMT or is that psilocybin? It's everything. Psilocybin's in DMT, MDMA. It's all. It's that's the active ingredient in these things that that makes you hallucinate. So the 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 uh, the amount of level of psilocybin in that will de- depend on your your level of trip basically the quote unquote trip for the I didn't know you know that. what i mean i didn't know that so Get let's say education real of the a real big therapy right now for for uh ptsd especially with soldiers is called ayahuasca which is very it has dmt in it it's a root in in uh, in peru and it's grown in the rainforest and um there's a lot of stuff on ayahuasca like i don't if you've seen um joe rogan talks about ayahuasca all the time like he calls it a one-year reset where he just he he does a one-year uh, calls it a basically a nervous reset where he just you know he goes time. does a trip and then <laughs> because what ayahuasca does it um it reveals to you your truths and shows you who you are and shows you the things that you've done and it kind of makes it it, it settles you it kind of empowers you a little bit but also um it's very traumatic like you can, you know, you're doing the work. You, you going can deep. have diarrhea while you're on it. You can throw up while you're while you're on ayahuasca. But the the journey that you go on that ayahuasca, the the shaman that directs the ceremony. You, I mean, telling you, you should really look into a lot of this. The the, the ayahuasca experience for PTSD is game changing right now. And right. I know that one of our friends talks about it a lot. Uh, Brandon talks about it a lot because he has he he's. I, I've done research on a group that he's he's familiar with, and I've actually researched that you know group as well. And he's the the only guy in the United States, the only shaman that's a 
legally allowed to, to do this, and or else you have to go to Peru. Of the Bible Belt. Yeah, yeah. So a loophole. <laughs> yeah, the loophole. You, you make it a religion, and you're able. But I to even do remember that. seeing on CNN there was a special with I. I think it's Lisa Ling. I I don't know. I know her last name's Ling. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't Lisa know if Ling. that's right. No, okay. you're right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, she went down to it was either Brazil. I'm I'm pretty sure it was Peru though, and. This was the whole context of studying ayahuasca was soldiers, veterans with PTSD that are looking for an alternative route aside from the 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 ton of pharmaceuticals and the Jack Daniels, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Something that's more powerful, more natural, you know, uh, allowing you to do the inner work. And when I say inner work, that's a nice way of saying purging. And and going a, to a very kind of cleansing deep that yeah psychoanalytical psychoanalytical level yeah i mean that that's that's exactly what it is it it's um and, and i've never done it but i've seen these specials i've definitely done a ton of research on it because i've tr- i've wanted i've been wanting to do it myself very scared but it's because it's very it becomes a traumatic you know few hours or so however long it lasts but the getting away from the pills and getting away from the alcohol and you know the pills only they they put you into a like a subconscious state that doesn't let you feel like you're yourself right what the ayahuasca does is basically it puts you on this journey and this experience that reminds you of who you are it reminds you of things you know that you've experienced and it and it puts you at ease with those experiences so it becomes this this um black and white into color kind of you know what i'm saying like it it, it kind of just uh just almost put things in a different light yeah and, i mean it, a, it it a yeah perspective a different appreciation and it's interesting because i think about what you said earlier and you said that a lot of these people that succumb to suicide you know a lot a lot of that is coming to the realization of not being able to become the person that you were before you left for deployment. Right. And that, and this very much returns you to that state where you're less anxious, you're less uptight. Um, and you're just, um, you, you're more at peace of with, with, with who you are and the experiences that you had because the experiences that you, we've had or that I've had can jade me, have jaded me to some extent that, takes that jadedness away from you know the way that you live your life and you're able to enjoy things a little bit easier a lot a lot more easier a lot and and absorb things a lot better than than just being completely against you know or 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 um, being kind of stuck in your way or being anger angry or just being uptight it's just it makes you a little bit more easier to to do. To, it makes it easier to to deal with things, I, I think, and that's very much reason why I want to I want to get to that point. So that's incredible, and it's great that there is that option. And we've been going for uh, two hours and fifteen minutes now. It's decent, and I got to tell you, this is one of the best conversations I've had. Podcast aside, this has been. Uh, I, I, I mean pretty incredible it's 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 uh you know you never know what you're gonna especially in a podcast you know i would say that 
you know, having done this in my past experience, you're doing a very good job. Uh, your your interview skill your you. your interview skills are very good. Um, it's just that you know, talking about this experience isn't easy for me. It's can be um, like you know, like you're talking about your problems to some. You know what I mean? And and sometimes that isn't very. That's all, a lot of the times it's not very easy to do. And like you said, to talk about it, your experience, a lot of times it falls on deaf ears. Um, and a lot of times it doesn't, it's just not understood the right way. And, you know, this gives you a way to really kind of put that out to people so they know really how it's going and for, for people that may, that they may know like me, or they may know like that, you know, that have, that has PTSD or lived a traumatic experience, this platform and a podcast platform is the best way to talk about it so others can hear about it i mean it's i'm truly thankful that you asked me to come here because it's this has been a two-hour therapy session for me that i could talk about this and you know i I know it was tough for you to get me here and i know you really knew it i knew it man i knew i know you hounded me and um if it wasn't for that if it wasn't for that i because I knew how bad I could feel how badly you really wanted this conversation. So that was one of the really the good things that kept me and yeah. wanted me to, to do this. Yeah. And like you said, it's a, it's a hard thing to talk about and, and to approach it in the right manner, you know, with dignity, with respect, with sensitivity, because it is, it isn't easy. Right. Right. And, uh, I was worried about that and I wanted to make sure that like I, I express that to you, what my intentions were. Yeah, Ken, man, you did a good job. You, your questions and you, cause I'm, I'm very much the person that needs to be like, I need questions to, to keep me on track. <laughs> I, I, I don't go, know, man. You I will were, go, you were, you I'll were find a it. fork and I'll, yeah. I'm like, Oh, well, this happened and I'll take that fork. I was like, man, yeah. this guy's got some shit to say. Like I knew he did, but he's really got some things to yeah. say. No, you're good, dude. You're yeah. good. Um, I love you, man. Well, cheers, man. I really Thank appreciate you. this. Cheers. I appreciate you a lot. Um, last thing I want to do is uh, I, I see once in a while on, on your posts, uh, whether it be Memorial Day or, or Veterans Day, you know, you you will sometimes give a post, which, which isn't often. Mm-hmm. But I want to give you the chance to maybe mention some of the guys that you've served with that have made the ultimate sacrifice yeah. and maybe mention their names. Um, yeah. Two guys that I would love to speak about were John Martin and Jermaine Franklin. Um, these two were killed on a IED blast on a second tour that I was not at. So we came home and then um, I got out of the military. Then they redeployed again. My buddies did. So they were uh, hit by an IED blast, and, um, you know, they didn't make it out. Um, Frank was, I think he was 20, 21 years old at the time. Um, Black kid. Absolute joy to be around. Like, this guy was um, always playing the drums. Always had something he was playing the drums with, just doing, like, just always making beats. Like, he had two pencils he carried. Like, it was, you know, we had, in our uniform, we always had to carry pens and pencils. 
because just part of the uniform in case you needed to write down something or any information. He would always take those pens and pencils out and just be making beats. And then, you know, we'd all be sitting around, and then some, some guys could rap, and some guys would freestyle in and stuff like that. And we had buddies from all over the country. I mean, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, Portland, everywhere. Every Alabama, Arkansas. Um, Frank was from Texas. We called him Frank. His name's Jermaine, but we called him Frank. And... Um, I mean, this guy, one thing that I, it was that our greeting towards each other, which everyone, you know, had with Frank was, you know, he was always like a thousand, like amped up, ready to go, just experience, just living life to the, to the fullest. And you can go on my Twitter account and I have my pinned tweet is a video of him and you can get, you'll get that vibe from him when he's speaking, but he is like. You know, we'd be passing like he was in third platoon and I was in second platoon. So we weren't always on the same schedules. But when, you know, our barracks rooms were right next to each other, when he'd be heading to his barrack and I'd be leaving my barrack and we'd pass each other, I'd be like, what's up, Frank? He'd be like, yo, what's up, Collie? And I'd be like, you doing you, Frank? Yo, I'm just being me. You know, it's just I just remember that guy. So like just that those little interactions of saying hi to him and stuff and and. You know, just him and John. John was a former Marine before he, you know he left the Marines and then joined the Army after. And and we do there was I haven't partaken in any of these memorial runs, but there's a John Martin Memorial Run that's in Ohio every year um, that takes place. If anybody want to look that up on Facebook or um, Instagram, I think it's on Instagram, but I know it's definitely on Facebook. It's the John Martin Memorial Fund Run, and and you can check that out and give it a like on Facebook. But those two guys that definitely, you know, wanted to shout out for their experiences and the, the people that they were. And my grandfathers as well, who basically, um, you know, helped me be who I am and give me the values that I, that I am today. So that I have today, if it wasn't for those guys, you know, I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't have done the things that I've done. So I appreciate you giving me that time, this time to shout them out. That's incredible. Thank you. Thanks, man. Um, where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Wiz Khalifa. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we'll play on the cannabis area, my last name. So uh, I can't take credit for that. My, my brother my brother is a pretty genius way of making up names and titles. So, I was trying yeah. to find you on my my podcast Instagram, and I was like, fuck, what, what's his name? Why can't I find him? Yeah, yeah. Why can't I find it's not it's like, like it, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, it's Wiz Khalifa, right? <laughs> so yeah, I just yeah, a little play on words there to use incorporate my last name into it. So yeah, in combat cultivators, in combat cultivators on Instagram, if you want to check that out, um, we've you know we got some some of our former grows on there, and you'll be able to check that out and kind of get in touch with us. And if you had, if there's any military people that ever listen to this and you can find me on social media, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can definitely find me at Wiz Khalifa. That's C A U L E Y F A on Twitter, social media, and you can reach out. And I will, you know, if you have struggles or if you need help, I will definitely take any time to help out at any moment I can. So, um, I would love to actually help out. So 
please do. Hell yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you, brother.